Hello, Grinders. Thanks for listening to Guys in a Garage. I appreciate all of you. If you want to read Heather's book, Selling Sex in the Silver Valley, for yourself and enjoy it just like I did, you can find it now on her website at findheatherly.com and use promo code GIG43 at checkout for 30% off plus free shipping. That's findheatherly.com. Use promo code GIG43 at checkout. Thank you all for listening again. Please enjoy the episode. Have a good one. Good morning, Grinders. Welcome to Guys in a Garage. Today we have another gal in the garage, Dr. Heather Brandsetter. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm awesome. Uh, Thanks again for coming in here. I appreciate you getting back to me on my email. Yeah, sometimes I don't get back to my emails. <laughs> Sorry, I don't ever check my email either. Um, usually I check it like once a month and then I end up finding things and they're like, oh crap, I probably should have answered that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, your credit card expired. We couldn't process your payment. Crap. It <laughs> <laughs> happens more often than it should. Uh, so usually what we talk about on the show This is geared more towards, uh, you know, who are you, what do you do for a living, why do you do it, and how did you get there? And so, I mean, I'd like to go through that with you too, but the reason why I've asked you on here today is because uh, about a year ago, I was staying with a bunch of friends at the Lux Rooms in Wallace, which is used to be a brothel, and it's right now sitting above the Silver Corner Bar. And so the owners have turned it into a basically just a giant Airbnb, which is awesome because you can rent out the rooms all individually. But it's I I never thought of myself as somebody who would like be into kind of like a a hostile kind of environment. You know, I'm more of a hotel, have my own room, my own bathroom and all that. But the way the Lux Rooms is set up, I mean, it was a brothel. So it's got the two communal bathrooms and then the like communal kitchen area and stuff like that, which actually turned out pretty rad because we rented out the entire thing. Like everybody had their own room and then we all gathered together in the kitchen at night and just got hammered drunk and then ran to the bars and all that stuff. Like it was a really fun time, but I was hanging out in there in the morning, drinking my coffee. And I happened to see your book selling sex in the silver Valley business, doing pleasure sitting on uh, the bookshelf that they had in there. And I was like, I had, I, growing up in Wallace, I had always heard that it had kind of like a seedy underbelly, you know, but we moved there in 91, 92. I was like seven years old. I didn't know anything about it. You know, you just little things that you hear here and there, but I mean, you're not going to get a whole lot. So when I saw your book, I was just instantly interested. I was like, okay, I want to see what this is about. What's in here. And I got to tell you, reading this thing was awesome. There's so much info in here that I never even knew. And, and the, the cool thing is I recognized your name because, you know, again, growing up over there, uh, you know, we, we kind of ran in different circles and, and you're a couple years ahead of me. So we didn't hang out much, but I knew your, your sister a little bit and, you know, I'd heard about you and stuff like that. So I recognized the name and I'm like, oh, cool. And then just reading the book, so many other people in the book that, I mean, I kind of know. And it was interesting to hear their stories and their side of it. So again, it was just, it was very fascinating to me to read through this whole thing and hear the story about, you know, everything that went on in Wallace and, you know, all the the gambling and the prostitution and all that stuff that all the little bits that I had never heard about 
never even knew until now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's pretty common for our generation too. And, um, and the up and coming one as well. And so that was part of the impetus for writing the book was to let people know what that history was that was mostly just conveyed through oral history means. I didn't know, um, Dolores Arnold, she was the most famous madam and yeah. I didn't even know her name until I started doing work on the book. And this woman was like, you don't know who Dolores Arnold is. There should be a statue to that woman in this city. <laughs> I was like, well, I mean, I guess that was, you know, the heyday was really in the previous generation. Whereas like I was only around for the end of it, you know, um, by the time, I was in fifth grade, I guess was 1991 was the raid. And that was, that was the last of it. It would have been June in 1991 when the FBI came in and there was one house that had still been kind of hanging in there through, yeah. through the end. And, then, and that was the U and I rooms, right? That's right. Yeah. 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 So the U and I was hanging into the end and then they closed down a few weeks before the FBI came in and busted everything. Um, but then there were also some private operators after that, you know, women who needed to make a living and didn't have other means. Mm. And so, so there was um, like one of our friends in school, her, her mom was a private operator on, on river street over by where I live now, mm. um, after the FBI raid even. And then I remember in third grade, I have this very vivid memory where we were talking about the you and I rooms and one of my friends, her grandma was the madam up there and was running the place at that time. And I remember then finally her grandma decided that it was like getting too hot or that she wanted to get out of the business. And so finally she passed it on. Um, to the gal who kept running it through the end and then they moved away and, and we were always kind of like, you know, did that really happen afterwards? <laughs> like, did, was that really true? Was her grandma really a madam or was that just something like we said? And then sure enough, she emailed me, got in touch with me through my blog and um, said, yeah, that's a true story. That was my grandma. <laughs> and then I also heard from the principal too, um, that she'd come in to register her students and the principal was like, well, do you need information about food stamps? And the, the woman was so insulted. She was like, do you know who I am? And then <laughs> at that moment, the principal like looked down at her rings on her fingers and she was like, oh, <laughs> no, I don't know who you are, but okay. <laughs> I am, you know, very rich in this money because I am running a sex work operation. <laughs> That's not what she said, but, um, but it was probably what she thought. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It was, it was basically like, no, I take care of my grandkids and, and I'm not ashamed of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking, um, you know, at that same time when I was probably around third or fourth grade, you know, you used to hear jokes and stuff about, uh, like, oh, the house has a red light on the porch. You know what that means? I didn't know what that means. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Cool. They like red. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's funny because, you know, when, when I was in third grade and we were talking about that, that gal who her grandma ran the UNI rooms, um, I kind of knew what was going on. I sort of like, I knew that it was sort of like something naughty, but then it wasn't until I was in fourth grade that like two of my friends were doing it on the playground (laughs) (laughs) and I got a very vivid description of what exactly happened and I was like oh that's what it means okay can't say that I haven't seen that myself (laughs) (laughs) it's like 
getting born and raised in, in Wallace in fourth grade on the playground. Yeah. Wallace always did seem more of like a uh, Wild West mm-hmm. kind of place, you know, yeah. versus mm-hmm. anywhere else that I had ever been. Mm-hmm. You know, up, up until we moved there, um, we lived in Everett, Washington. And I mean, I, I had never seen anything like the things that I saw growing up in, you know, in Wallace. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, it's a very, um, Shoshone County has always kind of done its own thing. So mm-hmm. that's, that's what I'm, I'm working on the second book now. I just got some funding from Idaho Humanities Council to continue the work that I did in this book and, um, but basically focus a little more on the, um, gambling and the FBI involvement historically, and then also bring in, um, some of the aspect where se- sex work played in because, the when the feds came into raid in 1991 they weren't really focused on prostitution but they were focused on the sheriff and the what they called the history of corruption in the in the area right and so yeah they were they were interested mostly in the corruption and what they considered racketeering mm-hmm. uh, the gambling stuff like that they weren't even really thinking about the prostitution but of course uh, i think you mentioned in the book if if they're going to go after one then they have to include everything mm-hmm. yeah that's right and and um that was the way the rico laws worked is you had to have more than one area of of corruption right and they tried to go after drugs and they couldn't they didn't really find anything there yeah um, but the, you know, but the Shoshone County, um, mentality has always just been like, we do what we want. We live and let live. And it's really kind of like the last American Western town because sex work, you know, part of what was an interesting question to me about the, the selling sex book was like, why did it last in Wallace for so long in this open secret yet, you know, uh, illegal way. It, it, I mean, the U and I rooms was one of the longest lasting houses in the United States that the Dumas in Butte was another one, but the U and I is like right up there with it. Yeah. And so that was sort of what I was interested in looking at was why had it, had it been able to, to flourish for so long in this very, above board yet illegal way. (laughs) (laughs) And, and that was, I think the question also that the, that the FBI agent had when he, you know, encountered a story about the sheriff and he was like, you know what, we're, I'm going to take care of that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and the story about the sheriff, that was two deputies that were disgruntled that basically went and narked. Well, um, so the way that the way the FBI narrative goes is they discovered that there was something afoot in Shoshone County after a guy was murdered over a Mm. drug, a drug deal in uh, the Tri-Cities. And so that um, that investigation led them back to Tara Gulch. Um, Okay. And um, (laughs) strangely named, really. But but actually the name was. The story goes uh, after some Chinese miners had a had a good claim, a silver claim up there, and then when it started producing, the white men hung them, and so and they called it Terra Gulch. Makes sense. And yeah. so, so this guy lived up there, and his name was Charlie Burns, and he supposedly had murdered this guy in uh, the Tri Cities, and the sheriff Sinkovich was protecting him. Was mm. the was the supposed claim? 
others around Shoshone County say that it originated because some disgruntled deputies um, and then uh, some guy who like had his eyes on becoming the next sheriff. And they, you know, went to the feds and said, hey, you know, you need to go take care of Shoshone County because no one else will. Yeah, of course. Some guy who wants his comeuppance is going to try and take out the top dog. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's lame. I, yeah, and I, I don't, I don't know what's, what's the, you know, what's the true story of the origin of, you know, how the feds started getting involved in there. One of my friends says that once the feds come around, they never go away. So, yeah. <laughs> so maybe it was just, you know, more of like, hey, we were here in 1929, and we're, we've still got our eye on you, Shoshone County. Because <laughs> there was a raid in 1929 that was remarkably similar to the one that happened in 91. Yeah. Well, and, and that would have been during prohibition, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that, I imagine that's what they were looking for. Yes. Booze and, that, and, and they pulled prostitution into it at mm, that time as yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, man, such a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's pretty interesting because, you know, with, with the question of sex work, you, it's illegal, except if you film it, then it's not. I know, right? I've had the same. <laughs> so. I've had the same argument with people before. Is like, okay, so it's okay for me to, you know, take a lady out to the bar, and you know, buy drinks and dinner and all this other stuff, you know, or vice versa. I mean, society today is a little bit different, but, and then if we decide to go home together and do whatever we want to do, that's perfectly fine. That's nature. And then if I go and find some random gal and say, hey, you want to make five grand the easy way. Like, oh, by the way, my buddy Rick is going to hold a camera. As long as I put it on the internet, that's perfectly legal too, right? Depending on where you live at, but there, it can't be private. Why? What the hell is the difference? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I... Camera I, or not, you're making memories. <laughs> exactly. When I started doing the research, I didn't really have an opinion on that, right? Um, I was just kind of interested in the historical question and people are always like oh why why did you research that but why did you want to research that like they think that you know obviously i'm like i don't know won't have some kind of vicarious or um like you know kind of sexual desire or something like that but um but it, it really was that i wanted to explore the local history in wallace and um find some stuff that hadn't been written written about and find something about women um, as well. And I discovered, you know, that there was this just wealth of information that nobody had ever written about these women and that it was probably going to die if I didn't write it down. And, and, yeah. and I think, I think too, that for any amateur historians out there, that it's really important to like, think about what are some un, untold stories, some unwritten histories that you know about and try and get those written down, um, try and get them out there because, um, there's a lot that we're just losing from, you know, knowledge as far as one generation to the next. And I think that, you know, we, we really could use some more wisdom <laughs> from yeah. the older generations yeah, as, as sure. we move forward through this, like, you know, it, incredibly speeding up time period, right? Yeah. Incrementally faster and faster and faster, I guess, exponentially, not incrementally. Yeah, it's like everything these days is moving at light speed and yeah. nobody's paying attention. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, you know, so, and that's kind of, that was why why I feel the urgency again, like writing about the FBI um, aspect of the story too. And 
and kind of getting back into this, um, narrative, which, I mean, there was a lot that is left to be told. Like I, you know, I could only put so much into a book and so I had to cut a lot out and there's, there's a lot that remains to be told about the sex work aspect Ooh. as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you got me excited. <laughs> well, so I even, I put in for, um, some FBI files, um, to, help me understand what was going on in the investigation, but they did not get back to me until March of 2017. The book was coming out in May of 2017. So it was too late to put any of that information in. So I have like yeah. a thousand more pages. I think, I think you mentioned that yeah. in here at some point that you were waiting for something from them under the freedom of information act and mm-hmm. they still hadn't got back to you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I do have that information now and I want to feature it. I'm also, I'm going to see if I can put in for public records requests for the trial of um, Sheriff Sinkovich, Mm. see if I can get the grand jury information or um, transcripts from the trials. There were two of them because he, um, the sheriff was released in a mistrial the first time and then he was acquitted the second time. Yeah. But they brought in a lot of prostitution stuff in the first trial, I guess. Yeah. I I thought it was uh, interesting and overwhelmingly awesome how you described that everybody that was, you know, from town that was involved in these trials, I mean, for lack of a better term, just said, yeah, fuck you. Mm -hmm. And they, (laughs) nobody talked. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Um, And you can see that in the, in the FBI investigation as well, where they're like, yeah, uncooperative witness, or we had to stop the interview because it was obvious that somebody was listening in from the other room and this this woman wasn't going to talk with that happening. Yeah. um, And there was, uh, there was a interview where they were talking to Ginger, who was the madam of the Oasis and they had pulled her back in and they said, Hey, you know, we, we know that you didn't tell us the whole truth about all this. And she's like, she's like, well, I did tell you the truth. I just didn't tell you the whole truth. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just omitted a few things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Their lawyers are basically, you know, kind of coaching them on how to be cooperative without being cooperative. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an art and it's in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say enough, but don't say too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, kind of tr- strike that balance between self-protection and, you yeah. know, protecting others. So the only two people who really suffered any consequences were the, um, the gambling machine operators. Right. They both had house arrest and they were fined, um, 200,000 bucks. Yeah. And it was only two of them, right? Yeah. It was like the local local bar owners. Uh, they weren't bar owners. Um, so one, Oh yeah. yeah. It was like independent gaming machine Mm -hmm. businesses. Yes. They, they supplied the bars. That's right. And so, um, one of them had the East end of the Valley and one of them had the West end of the Valley and they kind of divvied them up that way. But yeah, the poker machines, they were labeled for amusement only, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but then they, they paid off. (laughs) Yeah. So, but there was all sorts of different gambling devices, I guess, like punch boards, stuff that we don't even even know like what it is <laughs> where I'm like, going to have to get some people to like describe it for me. And then they also had card games and roulette and that kind mm. of thing too. So yeah, yeah. Stuff hidden in the back. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, they did. They had back rooms where the yeah. card games took place. Suites was one where there was a lot of card games. Yeah. I remember uh, doing the tour of the Oasis and this was when I was, man, I was still in grade school, maybe junior high, something like that. And uh, they were talking about, you know, the basement, how they used to have gambling downstairs and they had like a button upstairs that they could push 
to let them know that, you know, the cops were in or something was going on. And so everybody would put everything away and, you know, kind of take off out the back door. Yeah. And they, they had all these innovations they came up with during prohibition time too, regarding the, um, the illegal liquor. Cause that was yeah. the other thing that they got, that they came under fire for in, um, in the nineties was a lot of establishments were serving liquor without liquor licenses. Right. And so what they had come up with during prohibition era was they had these false, well, I guess they weren't false doors. They had, um, like a trap door underneath yeah. the, the rail liquor. So the liquor moved from being behind the bar to being like under the bar. And yeah. I would like drop down yeah, so where you couldn't see it. <laughs> and then they would, um, well, it, they crashed. So <laughs> what would happen is they would have a, like a button that you could push and the liquor would fall down through the trap door and then crash on the cement floor in the basement. Oh, okay. And then it was just wet liquid on the floor. Yeah. Don't know what that is. There's some glass <laughs> and there's some liquid on the floor, but peel all um, the labels off the bottles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was the scheme that they came up with during prohibition. And, and they, uh, they had some other tricksy ways of, of doing things, but that, that was one that I really appreciated. Yeah. Nothing breeds innovation and invention sometimes as much as illegal activity. <laughs> yeah. Evading the regulations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What can we do to do what we want to do without getting busted? Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Criminals are ingenious. Mm. I mean, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have a doctorate in research, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Um, I have a doctorate in it's technically it's in English. And then, um, but when you do a, P- a PhD, you kind of specialize. So tightly that you kind of go down your own path. Um, and so my specialty was rhetoric, which is the arts of persuasion. People don't Mm. really widely know anymore, like what rhetoric is, but it was one of the major areas that was taught during, um, the Greek and Roman times. Mm. And, and it was taught worldwide too. So it's it's not like philosophy, like Socrates, it's kind of like a different area. Okay. I'm glad you asked that because (laughs) It's like philosophy, except it was what the other guys were teaching that weren't Socrates. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, um, so Socrates in some ways was arguing against the people who were teaching rhetoric and it was mostly just because they were, they were actually teaching similar things. Mm-hmm. It was just that Socrates was upset that the uh, rhetoricians were getting, were asking to get paid for their teaching. Gotcha. (laughs) But no, and I think also that Socrates believed that if you could argue both sides of an argument equally well, that that meant that you weren't really ethical. And so there's always been this association with rhetoric that it's not ethical, and because because Socrates was uh, and Plato and Aristotle, they were they were the winners, right? <laughs> like, yeah. But um, and and so the the story that they wrote was such that th- what the sophists um, were teaching was deceptive or sophistry is you know that word that we get from them too. But Aristotle wrote the book Rhetoric, um, so and and it was at the heart of his academy. So he continued to teach it. So basically, uh, what we call or what we teach as rhetoric today is often taught in speech communication classes. So in speech comm, you kind of typically think of it as public address, you know, okay. like the art of standing up and, and politicians think of it as, you know, dress, say politicians dressing yeah. up your words real slickly. Uh-huh. But, um, <laughs> but as, as makes more sense now, right. But rhetoric actually 
um, the way that they taught it in, in Aristotle's academy was that you had to be ethical in order to do it well. Mm. So because most of the persuasive aspect of your argument rests on your character as a person. And so that's where ethics comes into, in addition to like the actual content of your argument. So kind of the, the difference between, um, you know, having a good reputation and speaking for the people to the people versus, uh, some asshole just standing up on a soapbox mm-hmm. preaching to everybody. Yeah. Or trying to market or yeah, 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 exactly. So marketing, um, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so your character, your emotional content and your rational content are typically those are, those are taught of as like the three, you know, pillars of rhetoric from the Arist- Aristotelian tradition. Um, okay. So, and character and emotions are often like kind of blown off. It's not as important as the rational, logical content. But when you look at a lot of what happens in our world persuasively, it's because of the emotional content and it's because of the character content. And it's not as much having to do with the truth or logic right. or, or reason. Yeah. As we can see with the internet. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of rhetoric on the internet. <laughs> so, and people typically say, oh, empty rhetoric is, is the epithet that like will accompany rhetoric. But, um, but rhetoric is, is not empty. Like there, it doesn't really, it's not really a coherent um, yeah. phrase. So empty rhetoric. Yeah. You hear a lot of that. So my, so my project in exploring um, the history of sex work is to find out, was to find out how history is a persuasive venture itself. They call it historiography and also, uh, and how, how it's a public memory adventure where we define our collective identity. So as opposed to, you know, like where you have a heritage and you right. have an understanding of your genealogy and your individual identity this was more like the identity of a town and the identity of, of, of a community and a way of life and how that itself is a story that we tell and it involves persuasion at its heart. It's yeah. not, it's not like you automatically have a mining town and then you've got brothels. You have to have a story that says mining towns need brothels. And that's why we have the justification for them to continue to exist. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. I mean, it- you know, like, like we said, uh, Wallace is, you know, has always been kind of wild west and it does have this different feel to it where everybody is on the same page and everybody's like, you know, yeah, you do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. But when it comes down to something like the FBI coming in and raiding, everybody bands together and they're like, nah, get the hell out of here. (laughs) Yeah. We have to, and and it's still, to me, it still kind of feels like that today. Everybody Mm -hmm. is still seems to be on the same page and, and I can see how over time, you know, as, as generations change, how that can just kind of dissipate Mm -hmm. and disappear. And that sucks because that's a, that's a great thing to hold on to in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So I like what you're doing with, you know, like you said, making sure that it's documented and putting that out there so that history, that history doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Well, as you have people who move in from other areas, as you yeah. have up and coming generations, then you start to lose an understanding of the cultural values that make that area what it was and, and what it is. And not all of it's great, but, uh, but all of that is the stuff that made it what it is. And so it's important to at least know it. And to understand it and to try and respect it. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, we just get 
a United States of sameness. Right. And like, that's not any, that's not very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, uh, 1984 ish where everybody's just droll and doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I, you know, I think that, um, it's important for us to preserve what's, what's special about places that we love and to, and also, you know, Wallace has so many superlatives. It was the silver capital of the world for a mm-hmm. really long time. Yeah. We produced the most silver out of any place in the whole world, right. which is kind of insane. We had some of the most violent labor wars in the history of the country. Yeah. Was that Bunker Hill? Yeah. Like blown up? Yeah. Yeah. That Dynamite Express. And Jess Walter, actually, he tells the story pretty well in his Cold Millions um, historical fiction novel. Nice. Um, yeah. I was like, yeah, good job. Yeah. Uh, my girlfriend's <laughs> reading a book right now. I think it's called The Deep Dark. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's true story. Yeah. True story is all about, you know, the mines and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And, um, yeah. So there were two very violent labor wars. The Pinkertons got involved. And then of course there was the, um, governor who got assassinated. Oh yeah. I forgot all about that. <laughs> so, so that was kind of a big deal. Then we had the big burn, you know, which Tim Egan wrote about just like these insane forest fires that swept through the whole Northwest and, and the story of Ed Pulaski. You're talking about uh, 1910? Yeah. 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 Um, and Ed Pulaski kind of like rescuing some of Wallace. <laughs> yeah. His, um, and his, well, crew and he rescued his whole crew. Cause I think it was one guy that went crazy and ran out of the cave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. That's a great story. Mm-hmm. I have yet to hike the Pulaski trail up there, but it's on my list of things to do for next summer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And there's a lot of really neat stories that come out of that as well. You know, like the trains that are kind of like hiding out in the tunnels and Mm. Avery. There's still trains and tunnels up there. No, that was in the, in the book. Um, he tells the story of of how people dealt with the forest fires throughout that whole area. Yeah. They just got people on trains and parked them in the tunnels. That was one of the strategies because they didn't know, they didn't know what to do exactly. You know, like there was a lot of confusion. What's the best strategy? How are we going to live through this? If it works, (laughs) Hey, why not? That, that was one winning strategy. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, what else? And then of course we had sex work that lasted for such a long time in this illegal yeah, above board, like old west way. So over a century, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. Yep, from eighteen eighty four to nineteen ninety one. Yeah, man, and then somebody had to come in and ruin it. <laughs> yeah, you know, people talk about often that they say that they wish that the houses were back and that mm-hmm. they they would you know like vote for the houses returning. And a lot of the justification that they give for that is they say that there were no sex crimes when we had right. the houses, and that's that was another. That was a persuasive element that the madams inserted into the discourse, I think. Yeah, that's something um, you talked about several times in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so I think that, you know, the madams were really very persuasive themselves in, yes. in directing the way that the history went. If they hadn't been so, I guess, proactive about the, the, the small talk that they use, the gossip that they inserted, mm-hmm. um, then I don't think that they would have last, that the houses would have lasted so long. Well, I mean, they were very intelligent taking advantage of the tools that you have. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's a small town. People yes. talk, right? Yes. I mean, you can't poop in that town without everybody knowing what color it is. So of course, why not go in, get your hair done and maybe just mention something? Yes. Because exactly. of course it's going to snowball into something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah, they, so they had, they were very smart women. They knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, and they had lines of argument that directly countered the negative criticisms yeah. too. And they not only used those arguments like verbally, but they also put them into action. Um, so as an example of this during the, from like 1910 until 1918, roundabout when World War II ended, mm-hmm. most of the red light districts in the whole United States stopped functioning. So right. there was major pressure from reformists all across the United States. And so most of the, um, most of the red light districts went away at that time. And a big criticism was the um, well, reformists and uh, the government not wanting the mm-hmm. soldiers picking up diseases and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, That's that, right. That was a part of it. That was the, and that was the main part of it Yeah, was, was the, was the diseases. So, so people were kind of like, okay about the diseases until the war then really kind of ramped up mm. the concern about it. And so in order to counter that, that rhetoric and, and there were active prop, uh, propaganda propate. <laughs> propaganda campaigns against um, sex work involving disease. And I think I put some pictures of that in the book. But in order to counter that, the women made a ritual of washing the man's, um, as one person uh, who was describing it to me called it his his equipment. (laughs) (laughs) So so basically, before you went to go see any of the women, you had to to go through an inspection and a washing ritual. And that was to basically, like make sure that everybody knew that cleanliness was a part of the process. Yeah. Well, I mean, washing a guy off with soap and water probably isn't going to do a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Maybe get rid of some of the scum, but <laughs> that's I mean, right. We know that now. Yeah. At, at least you'll be able to take a gander, you know, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> is there anything weird going on there? there? Yes. And they, and they did look for a, they called it a drip. Um, too. So I guess <laughs> there was an obvious, there was one obvious, if you kind of like squeezed it just right, you could see if there, was like kind of green funk coming out. Gross. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. You got an oozer. (laughs) And that's why the heyday really um, didn't happen until after World War II because, well, for one, the women were able to kind of take back control over the profession because of um, supply and demand. But also penicillin happened. And so most um, sexually transmitted infections were able to be cured by penicillin yeah. all of a sudden. Yeah. And so you then got a drippy dung, you go in and get a shot. Yeah. So then people were not as scared yeah. anymore, but the way that they kept going throughout that time was just to kind of reinsert, Oh, we we're cl- we're clean, you know, more clean than some, some floozy on the street or whatever. Yeah. And that's, and that's what they would say too, is like, you know, we can save marriages because it's just a transaction and there's no emotion involved. So your husband can, you know, come get a, a straight French <laughs> <laughs> without, um, without having that emotional connection with his neighbor. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The, the mentality behind that, that, uh, that women would be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, well he's just going and getting his rocks off. He doesn't love her. Who cares? Mm-hmm. It's crap that I ain't gonna do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny too. Like you look back and at several several different surveys. One was conducted by a phone book company. Um, a phone book company. Yeah, it was. AT and T. Maybe it wasn't the phone book company. <laughs> Where was I? Th- oh no, it wasn't. Okay, so 
I found a newspaper article. This is recent, so this is why it's not solidified in my mind very much. But I found a newspaper article that was talking about a survey that had been done, and they were picking names randomly out of the phone book (laughs) (laughs) for the survey. And and they found 70% of people who were randomly picked out of the phone book had, you know, full support of the houses. Mm. And then there was another guy who, and this was around the same time. This was like in the 60s, I think, maybe the 70s late sixties. And then there was another guy who he did his master's in criminology. And I put, I put this information in the book and he did a survey and discovered that 70% of people were in support of him. So like basically throughout the year, he pretty much came up with the same, he came up with the same number. Um, he was, I think he was about 10 years later after Mm. that survey. So it's a pretty good stretch to still Mm -hmm. come up with the same number. Yeah. In the sixties and seventies. Yeah. So it, it experienced pretty popular support. There were some who were in the clergy who were the most outspoken against it. Yeah. You know that, and that was again where the madams were like, well, we do a lot for this, for the people too, just as much as the clergy does. We can, right. we can save your marriage just as well as, as the Catholic priest can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't necessarily have any real opinion about it either way. I mean, I talk a lot about my sh- on my show about comfort and how men have become far too comfortable and society in general has become far too comfortable. I mean, we have everything you could possibly want, you know, and so we're not really doing anything that betters ourselves. So in terms of prostitution, I mean, as far as a moral code goes, I think that that kind of contributes to that comfort. But I also see I also see how it could be a pro you know, if it does stop sexual crimes, if it gives somebody an outlet where you just go pay, you know, 50 bucks for it versus, you know, grabbing some little girl on a playground. Yeah. Okay, cool. Maybe it is something that is needed. It's a, it's a needed service getting your car washed or whatever else. I mean, if you got to do it, you got to do it. Right. So, and I but I mean, I, I'm all in favor of freedom. So whether I agree with it or not, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't, if, if, like I said, if I can go to a bar and pick up some gal and take her home and, you know, do her thing, I don't see any reason why if a woman chooses to now women that are being trafficked and are being pushed into it and they don't really want to do it. Yeah. Okay. Then that's something that needs to be addressed. But if you are choosing to say, Hey, you know, whatever, I got this thing that I can make a lot of money with. Why not? Oh, do it. If that's your choice, go ahead and do it. It's none of my business and it shouldn't be anybody else's business either. And I don't, I don't know. I should say also that, um, it was true that having sex work prevented sex crimes. I, I wasn't able to bear that out in, I went into the records and I tried to figure out if that's the case. I think also like even in the places where prostitution is legalized um, mm-hmm. to this day, we still don't know if that's the case or not. Right. The research is just really hard to do. And so, but I will say, I think that sex crimes were much more looked down upon and much more uh, cr- like, like there was no tolerance for them. Like, so I do yeah. think that maybe there was some like social extended, you know, very extreme social stigma against sex crimes yeah. because you could go get what you needed up at the house. Even right. if, even if that wasn't necessarily like the, ju- like the rationale for, you know, like why you would, right, right, right. 
you know, hurt someone in that way. Well, see, I, I think, I think the research on that might be difficult in the fact that it was a different time, mm-hmm. right? So in a place like Wallace where prostitution was legal, sure. If, if someone, you know, if, if a woman came to the sheriff's station with a, with a complaint and it's like, oh, you know, this guy did this or whatever. Yeah. It was probably taken more seriously because why would she say that when there are cat houses here and a guy could go get it right there. Right. Mm-hmm. But then when you look in other places that were more reformed and were definitely more conservative, you, you end up with like the good old boys club. You know, yes. I, I think back, especially in that time, it was looked more upon whether or not it was even reported because how many sex crimes are not even reported because right. of embarrassment mm-hmm. or not wanting to relive through the experience or anything like that. Um, not only that, but then having to worry about, or not necessarily worry, but you go in and you make this claim, you know, and then back then again, a different time, they would look at you and it's like, well, what did you do? Is that how you were dressed? You know, stuff like that. Yes. Where, where they would the look, victim blame. Exactly. They would, they would shame the woman making the claim more than they would actually think about, did this actually happen? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think, I think the data would probably be a little bit skewed to try and look at it at that time of does prostitution help cut down sex crimes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tried, I tried to figure it out, but that was a question the data would not bear yeah. for me. But, um, but you know, you want to talk about like contemporary um, politics. I did eventually kind of form somewhat of an opinion about it because as I talked to sex workers and as I read more, um, you know, what you hear consistently from people who sell sex and, um, and also from people who are, you know, who patronize, but mostly from the people who are involved in the sex work industry is that if we could decriminalize it, it would be better for everybody. Like this health and safety of everyone would just be more increased if we could, if we could take away that criminal penalty. But then, um, you know, you were talking about trafficking though, which Mm -hmm. is complicated the matter a lot because there's a lot of organizations and people who believe that nobody would choose to do this work freely and that everybody who's involved in it is, is inherently being exploited and, um, or that as opposed to being, you know, like trafficked in the way that we might think of it, like kidnapped and sold into sex slavery, that instead it's like basically you're abused into thinking that you don't deserve any better and you have this um, captivity mentality. Right. And so, and, and I don't, I don't think that there's any like bridging the divide there. I've, I've talked to people um, who are activists about sex work on, on that front and there's just a difference of opinion in the possibilities. And like what those activists will say is that when women are in, in the middle of their sex work activity, that they say they'll, that they're freely participating. But then when they get out, they say, Oh no, I wasn't, (laughs) but there's always this kind of difficulty because there's a confirmation bias in some way by these are the women who after they get out, they say that, you know, right. Versus like, while they're still participating. So there are though women who I've talked to who had been sex workers and, and they did it for a while because that was what made sense for them and they don't regret it. And they said, and they will say that they do it freely, but it's like, that's like an inconvenient truth that some of the, I guess, 
people who fall on the traffic at all sex workers trafficking side of the argument like can't like don't really acknowledge i guess yeah like so so there like politically it's very tricky waters out there in order to discuss it because just in the definition of the terms you kind of already run into trouble and you can't really get like people are just kind of talking past each other on the definitions yeah yeah i mean i've i've talked to people before too who you know they they think the same way that all sex workers whether it's porn or prostitution or whatever else that they're damaged people that they've Mm -hmm. been abused or something and and that's how they get into it and i would tend to lean on the side that that's probably true for a lot Mm -hmm. but not all Mm -hmm. you know um i watched uh what was it uh it was like a documentary once on netflix a few years ago it was called after porn ends and it basically talked to a lot of you know porn stars who were out of the business now and some that were still in it you know and and they asked them questions like you know why did you do this uh do you regret it stuff like that you know how did you get into it and from what i saw it was kind of half and half there were some that were like you know uh i didn't have anywhere else to go i had to leave my house my you know my dad raped me or something whatever so it was the only thing i knew and then you have others that i mean there there's other women who were who are in or were in the porn industry who actually they have doctorates or they have degrees in something Mm -hmm. and they're not stupid people like they just did it because they wanted the money and i mean half of them because they actually enjoy it Mm mm-hmm yeah it's like oh i get to get paid to get laid all day okay cool yeah you can make just as much money as you can in some other job where you're risking your life in other ways you're risking your physical body in other ways you know like being a minor for example right very difficult and physically i mean especially when you go when you look way back when they're like using candles (laughs) (laughs) like hand drilling in in underground you know like these are that's a horrible condition to be working in, you know, and they're risking their life and, you know, they're making as much money as, you know, these, as these women, um, like in there. So it depends on the, um, I guess also it depends on the quality of the establishment too. So there were like high class, there were like super high class places. And then there were these cribs that were pretty miserable that you wouldn't want to work in. Yeah. And so I think that that's the other thing to consider as well. You know, Ginger, who ran the Oasis, when she was in L.A., um, or sorry, Las Vegas as a call girl, she was apparently making like $20,000 in a night, which is just astounding to me. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good money, especially for back then. She was running around with the famous, with the the stars, um, you know, with the Rat Pack. And that's what her her son and her daughter-in-law told me anyway, Mm. so... But I, I believe it, you know, like when you look at her headshot, like she's just majestic. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you have a couple pictures of her in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, yeah, she was a gorgeous lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's so it really depends on their working conditions. And then also, I think the historical context as well, you know, nowadays things are a lot different than they were for women. Women back then did not have as many opportunities. And so right. I do think there was um, some um, economic uh, coercion right that entered into the picture there yeah definitely trying it, to raise a family yeah, yeah, yeah a lot of them a lot of them are part-timers they they go to work for a while make their money nobody in their family ever knew what they were doing and then they'd and then they come home 
that was what Ginger's son said. He didn't, he didn't have any clue that his mom was a sex worker, much less like running a whole business. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there, there really weren't as many opportunities for women in the labor force back mm-hmm. then as, you know, as there right. are today. So, yeah, yep. especially, so, I mean, um, yeah, if you could, if you could make 20 grand a night, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that was why Dolores came over from the shipyards is, you know, she was, she was working in the shipyards and, you know, she needed to support herself. Her mom had died when she was young and they were very impoverished. I mean, the great depression was super hard. And so once there were these work work camps available, like the Grand Coulee had a whole, you know, a whole bunch of sex workers who kind of just like followed the workers around. And, Mm. and so women would sort of like hear, you know, if you were enterprising, if you were willing to do the work, you could make money. And so she'd heard that about Wallace, that there was a place where you could go and get, you know, get a little bit of money underneath you and then you could buy your own place. And that was what she ended up doing. Yeah. She, Worked for a little bit and then it ended up buying, which one was it? The Lux Rooms. The Lux Rooms, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, so she was kind of like the woman who determined what all the rules would be for everybody else who came later. Yeah, she started that era of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was she, like... She was, she was the one. She was an enterprising businesswoman yeah. who was very pragmatic. She had an incredible sense of humor and she was just sort of no nonsense. Like I'm going to get this done and we're going to make it happen and things are going to be done my way. <laughs> and she ran a very tight ship. <laughs> yeah, it appears so. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into what you're doing? I mean, is this something that you were interested in early age? Mm, yeah. Um, so actually I was just going through some of my old, uh, documents from when I was a child. I, I started writing in journals when I was like, as soon as I could write, Mm. like basically my journals begin with a mixture of words and pictures because I couldn't like actually articulate everything. I had to draw some of it. Cable pictograms. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I always knew I was going to be a writer. That was something that was very strong in me from um, my earliest memories. And I don't, I don't know why, I don't know where that came from. I mean, I loved to read, but I think there's something about story and storytelling that was just, it just always felt right to me. So, so I was writing stories, you know, going to young writers conferences, you know, entering my books into, or my, I say books, it's like books in quotes, (laughs) like stories into contests and submitting them to magazines and stuff. And then everybody is always like, well, you got to have a backup plan, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you can't just be a writer. (laughs) This is what people say. So I decided that I was going to be a psychologist and then I was going to be a lawyer. Um, And then ultimately I ended up signing up for the law, for the bar, not for the, for the LSAT. So it's like, it's like the test that you have to take to become, to get into law school. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, I got to like within a week of that test and I was like, you know what? I don't think I really want to do this. It took that like hopping over that hoop or jumping, trying to jump through that hoop yeah. for me to see that that was not something that I wanted to do. And so I just abandoned it. I ate that like hundred dollar fee that I paid <laughs> <laughs> to like sign up for the test. And then I decided to stick around in Moscow. I was in, in university of Idaho at this point, um, and start taking some more creative writing classes. And 
um, just kind of decide later that I would figure out what my backup plan would be. And what I ended up doing was, um, so I was double major in English and philosophy. So I have a very, like, a very solid background in philosophy yeah. as well. Um, and that was all that continued with my, um, like graduate education too. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to do? So I, I didn't know. And so I became the secretary for the philosophy department. And then I started teaching ethics classes while you were going to U of, U of I. This was right after I finished it. Oh, okay. So I was just kind of like, well, I guess I'll just finish U of I. Um, and then I'll figure out things from there. And then while I was doing that, then I was applying to grad school. I decided I'd go to grad school and, um, go to English and see, see what I could like do as far as following my interest. And that was kind of just my philosophy at that point, I guess, was to sort of like follow what I was interested in and hope that it would bring me somewhere that I wanted to be. So I applied to like the top 20 schools and I was like, if I can't get into a top 20 grad school, then I won't go. And I'll just <laughs> take that as my sign and I'll, you know, move on and figure something else out. But I did get into UNC and so at Chapel Hill and my mom, so my mom and I just kind of like drove out there sight unseen. We get there at like eight 30 in the morning on a Saturday. And my mom, after driving for three days straight, as I was a rafting guide at that time in the summer. And so I was like trying to get all the rafting I could in. So we just like, <laughs> like bombed out there on 16 hour days, <laughs> road trips. Wow. We get there on you, UNC in North Carolina. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Tar Heels. <laughs> so all the way across the country. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a good drive. Yeah. It was amazing too. Cause we woke up on the last day in Greensboro, which was like almost Chapel Hill. And the sound of the insects out there is mm. just, it is so much different than the West, you know, and I'd never been across the Mississippi and it was just this amazing, like swell of the cicadas. And yeah. It's, it's really cool. And so humid. So yeah. Humid. Even just getting into Missouri, mm -hmm. I've, I've heard is where like the change kind of happens. Yeah. It's it, almost like one side of the country versus the other side. The, of the Mississippi country. river. Or, yeah. Yes. Or as somebody has called it misery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not a fan of Missouri. <laughs> my grandpa, my grandpa's from there originally, but yeah. not a fan of that place. So yeah. So we get there and my mom just, she starts crying. She's like, what do we do now? And I go, we find a place for me to live. <laughs> <laughs> so I like grabbed this little apartment book thing that was at the place where we went to go eat breakfast. And I was like, we'll just start calling places, mom. <laughs> she's like, okay. <laughs> she's just, she was like scared, you know, yeah. I didn't have a plan. <laughs> and, and you're just and like, yeah, whatever. School we'll was starting out. on Monday. Wow. <laughs> so, Jeez. Yeah. So I did, I called places and found a place to live and we stayed in a hotel that first night. And I think we moved me in the second night <laughs> and, and there I was. <laughs> so, so what did you, what did you do for work while you were there? Um, taught. So okay. while, while you're in grad school, basically at, at a public institute, this is how it works at public institutions is if you go to grad school, then you teach for your living and, and that's okay. how they get their English teachers. So I taught English 101 and 102, and then we transitioned to where I was teaching, um, writing in the sciences and writing in the social sciences and writing. I didn't do, I didn't ever do the writing in the humanities courses, but so those were what I taught. Um, and then at one point I was in charge of the writing program. And I, so I was kind of like in charge of the teachers too, mm. not in charge of the whole program, but in charge of the, the teachers who were teaching the like 101, 102 classes basically. 
So, so you, you teach about three courses a year. And so it takes you a little while to get through grad school as far as like compared to private school where you're not teaching that much. But, um, but that was what I wanted to do. I didn't know also that you could go to grad school for writing. And that was essentially what writing and rhetoric was. Um, so within English, you could go for like literature, like Chaucer and Shakespeare and, um, you know, the Bronte sisters, or you could do writing and rhetoric. And so then I ended up in the writing and rhetoric pathway and then those, and then that's kind of has become its own, I guess, discipline on its own. But a lot of people don't know about it. Um, they just, they don't realize that that's a pathway that you can follow. And I didn't either until I yeah, started I like have. following my interests. Yeah. I was like, wait, I don't have to get an MFA to get a degree, an, an advanced level degree in writing. I can just get like a PhD in writing. And they're like, yeah, you can. Like, oh, sweet. Okay. I'm in the right place. Nice. <laughs> so I just kind of happened to be in the right, in the right spot. And and then I, I was kind of like done with higher education because there's a lot of things that are very frustrating about it. Um, you started getting a little burnt out? Um, no, I wasn't burned out. I was like very idealistic and um, felt as though uh, professors were being hypocritical as far as the laboring mm. conditions of the university. So, and there's a lot of writing about this. It's I'm I'm not the only one who's ever observed this. Yeah. I think that there's there's a book called The University in Ruins. It's it's old now, but I, I remember I read it and think like, oh yeah, this is you know, you've got a bunch of like people who believe in Marxism, right? Mm. And who believe in equality and justice, who are these tenure track positions that are only about 20% of the university and they're making all the money and doing the littlest amount of the work. And you've got people like me, like who were in grad school, um, who were doing the majority of the teaching and like making, I mean, pennies. And um, yeah, but what it seems like people don't understand is that if you make the majority of the money, you can afford to do the least amount of work. <laughs> and it just seemed that, very that hypocritical to me. That should be your goal. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> if we're all equal, then what is the point of working at all or working hard? <laughs> you kind of lose, uh, to, to me, I would, I would lose interest in doing anything. Mm. Well, and that's the thing is like when, when you have extreme inequality, mm -hmm. you have, lack of motivation at, at the lowest end. Right? right. Yeah. Um, and, and so anyway, so, so I became very political and we like staged some sit-ins to try and get better working conditions for grad students and adjunct professors who were mostly doing the one, doing the teaching of all the classes. And then, and then I was like, you know what? I don't want to purchase, I don't want to be complicit in the system anymore. I decided I was like, I'm done. And my friend's like, well, you can't drop out of grad school. That's not going to make a difference. That's a protest. Nobody will hear. And I was like, yeah, I know I'm, I'm going to get my degree, but I, I'm not going to I'm not going to go into higher education after this. And then, um, I taught summer bridge after, right after I graduated. And cause I, you know, like didn't have any other jobs lined up cause I was so focused on like finishing my degree. And then, um, I was like, well now what, what do I do next? <laughs> and, and then this job came up over in Wake Forest, which was just an hour away and it was a visiting professorship. So it was basically like you have a year to teach 
whatever you want, essentially. Um, <laughs> I taught a course in underground rhetoric and I taught in uh, revolution. So underground re- revolution were kind of like my interests. Mm. Underground probably makes sense with this book, right? Yeah. <laughs> revolution a little bit with um, <laughs> like the mining labor wars right. um, history and um, social movement was one big thing that I was interested in figuring out how, how groups of people together, like make change. Right. And so I taught those classes at Wake Forest for a year. And then I was like, you know, I'll go on the market, see if I can get a tenure track job. If I can get a tenure track job, then okay, I'll stay in higher ed. And so I ended up at Virginia Military Institute, (laughs) which was quite the place. (laughs) Virginia Military Institute? Yes. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting place because it's a public institution. It's a public school but it's in a military environment and uh, um, very so like a, a military school. That's not military. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very prestigious, like on the East coast Wow, people it's yeah, it's very prestigious. It's like people think the world of it. It's got the biggest endowment of any public institution, I think in the whole country. Hmm. So um, it's got alumni who care about it very much and give a lot of money to it. It's also 90% men. And so that's probably part of the reason why the endowment is so big as also for like a public institution, they went through a court case. It was a Supreme court case where uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the uh, majority opinion to allow women to enter in 1998, I think. So before that, was it men only? Uh Yeah. And they, and yeah, they were very unwilling to let women in. So they had to have the Supreme court order them to do so. Um, (laughs) so so it was places where every building is named after someone who donated. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Well, yes. Um, but also historically, like they had a lot of pride and like Andrew Jackson went there. Mm, Um, Marshall, um, of the Marshall plan was a student there, a cadet there. They call them cadets. Yeah. It was, yeah. And then they make you, they make all the professors be officers in the Virginia military in the, sorry, in the Virginia militia unorganized. So, Interesting. um, yeah, so they made me a major. So as, as, as the lowest on the professor scale, right. So as an, an assistant professor tenure, they made all the tenure tracks majors and up. Hmm. And so I was so, so major. you were just a major in the, in the Virginia militia unorganized. Huh. They gave me a little commission and the governor signed it <laughs> and I had to go wear a uniform and salute. All right. Um, so I got, I got a, I got a proper salute. <laughs> <laughs> you had to like kind of practice it because otherwise the cadets would make fun of you Yeah. if you didn't salute them correctly. Virginia militia unorganized. Mm -hmm. Is there an organized Virginia militia? (laughs) Good question. I don't remember. I don't think so. (laughs) So if the shit hit the fan, then you guys would be called up for something. We could have been. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think anybody would have wanted a, a crew of professors who were, you know, like randomly commissioned, but who knows? Maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, you never know. Um, uh, so I, I read this book called, I think it's called one second after. And, uh, it's, I don't, I don't necessarily want to call it a biopic, but I've been told that the highest levels of the military actually use it as a training manual. And the story is about, uh, I think it's like the first year or the first six months after, um, the United States is hit with an EMP that wipes out 
the entire power grid, everything, you name it, and how everyone goes all of a sudden from, you know, society as it is today to Lord of the Flies. Mm, mm-hmm. It's crazy. It is a great book. And a lot of the people in that book after everything goes down, I mean, a lot of them are teachers and professors and, and, you know, learned people that are trying to just hold things together. Yeah. And they end up going into martial law. And I mean, if you steal a candy bar, then you're probably going to get shot in the face. And that's Hmm. kind of just how they decided they were going to do things just to keep order. Right. It's, it's very interesting book. Yeah. So, so I mean, in an instance like that, I mean, you know, I say if shit hits the fan, well, if it's, (laughs) if it's that bad, I mean, yeah, maybe you want professors, you want people around that can still carry on teaching people how to read and write or people who know how to build stuff. Right. The reason why I ended up there actually was because they had a very big focus on civic discourse. Mm. They believed that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and they wanted for their cadets to have an understanding of how to discourse intelligently and how to, how to have good arguments. And this was before, I mean, this, this was what 2013. Yeah. 2013 was when I was hired there. And so, so this is 10 years ago. This was before we have devolved like even so much further, you know, and as far as our public discourse. And so I did appreciate that they were very forward thinking on that. You know, they were prioritizing the need to have good communication, you know, communication is important. Well, yeah. I mean, I would argue, you know, I'm, if, I'm a little not, biased. If not one of the I most important things. It's the most important thing because, <laughs> yeah. you know, like we can solve so many problems as humans, but mm-hmm. we need communication to bridge right. those, those, um, divides. I mean, when you think about like, you know, climate change, for example, or, or war, I mean, those are problems of breakdown of communication. If we could just more effectively persuade each other and listen to each other and communicate with each other, we could, we could pretty much do whatever, you know, right. what we need to do to, to continue to exist as a human um, species. Yeah. And at this point, I, I don't know, I'm a little skeptical about whether or not our, you know, our human um, humanness is going to live on. I mean, I guess that's, it's been a concern um, since the renaissance, renaissance of rhetoric, which was, which first happened in the fifth, in the fifties, like with the atomic bomb where we had, yeah again, this problem of communication and lack thereof. And we had this weapon of mass destruction all of a sudden at our fingertips. So yeah, we didn't have to communicate cause we just blow you up. <laughs> 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 <Yes>. exactly. <laughs> just look at any other country I mean. in the world and be like, what the hell did you just say to me? <laughs> <laughs> so that was when, and that, so that was when rhetoric kind of came back from the dark ages. Cause it sort of disappeared yeah. um, for a while there as a, as a, um, as a subject worth study. So you think we're going to hell in a handbasket? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I, so my current profession is as a counselor and I think that that's because I like to see the best in people and I have a pretty optimistic view of things. So, so no, I don't think so. Um, but I do, I do worry about the influence of our technology. And Mm. I I think that it's, it's something that is going to help us in the long run, but we have to be able to work with it in more effective ways than what we have been. We need to leverage 
our technology for communication, you know, for actual communication, as opposed to, you know, making people very rich because they're selling us stuff. Yeah. I've, I've heard the, I don't know what you call it, but technology surpassing our humanity and like, Oh, well someday that's going to happen. I think it already has. Mm, Yeah. I I think it already has, Mm -hmm. you know, it's obvious that we're just monkeys on a playground with (laughs) cool toys and we have no idea how to actually use them. I mean, I think, I think that, that there's so much that we can, that we can do if we just like band together, use the information, use the technology that we have available. I think we can make the world a much better place, but. Right. But then you'd have to convince people to actually do that versus hanging out and watching cat videos and only fans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, I think, I think that part of that is what we can convey in our, in our books. (laughs) That is part of, I guess, my, my reason for continuing to write history is, is to help like provide a place, provide a future, I guess, like by looking back to the past to say, Hey, what can we learn? What can we learn about the past? And what can it help us like understand about the future that we're not seeing right now? Because we're absorbed in these, in this technological environment. That's very fast, fast paced. Well, but you have to be able to look at, you have to be able to look at those books and the history in, you know, an objective way. And not just through the lens of your own opinion. Mm -hmm. I I think that's the hardest part. Mm -hmm. That's the hardest thing for people to grasp because, you know, like I was saying, okay, I don't necessarily feel one way or the other about prostitution, but I I definitely feel a certain way about freedom. Mm -hmm. So instead of looking at, instead of looking at it as, well, I think this is wrong. And so people shouldn't be able to do it. It's okay, well, I have my opinion on it. I don't necessarily think that it's a healthy thing, but I could see how in some way it could be depending on how it's used. Mm -hmm. So, but either way I look at it, well, you should be able to just do whatever the hell you want to do if it's your own choice, Mm. you know? Yeah. So I think, sorry, I think so many people look at everything now through their own lens of what they believe and how they think things should be done. And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, are you even going to attempt to look at it from a different perspective? Yes. From somebody else's point of view. Right. I've broken record. I've said this on my show a million times. If, if you're going into an argument with the sole intent of trying to change somebody's mind, then you've already lost the argument. Yeah. And, and rhetoric, the first skill is to listen. Right. I mean, it's very much the case that you can't, you can't know where someone else is at and meet them with, you know, where they're at. If Mm -hmm. you're not listening, right. If you don't make an attempt to see things through their perspective. Yeah. 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 You have to be willing to accept that there may be a hint of truth or a golden nugget on the other side of the fence Mm -hmm. and, and be able to maybe accept a piece of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Versus just spewing your own rhetoric and what you believe. Mm -hmm. That's the problem with beliefs is they're a lot harder to change than ideas. Yeah. And that, uh, that I think also was the uh, problem with the FBI when they came in to raid in the nineties was they, after all this time that they were listening and eavesdropping and wiretapping and yeah, they tapped a lot of phones. (laughs) Yes. After this extended undercover operation that lasted three years, they still didn't get it. You know, they still didn't understand like 
what Shoshone County was all about. And they still didn't get that you can't just scapegoat the sheriff for a hundred years of prostitution and gambling and, and yeah. Cause he wasn't a sheriff for a hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> so how is it all his fault? Yeah. And even in their own files, um, the FBI, you can, you can see where they're like, yeah, so-and-so sheriff, um, showed Sheriff Sinkovich how things had been done yeah. in Joshua County, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, this was in the mid seventies <laughs> yeah. and, yeah, and he had to go through a training program somewhere. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't his idea. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not everything goes on the books. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, and the big difference too, that I think that they didn't understand was, instead of a typical corruption case, like typically in corruption, when you think about graft and um, public officials doing things that are wrong, they're doing it for personal benefit, right? right? They're doing it for their own gain. But in Wallace, that wasn't the case. It was for the community. It was actually when they were collecting money, it went into a a fund actually it was managed by the chamber of commerce for a while um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah and that's it, right because the madams had to pay they had to pay a fine right well th- i mean but i mean when you look idea. at it it was really just an operating yeah cost. they they wanted to to keep the police in their good graces yeah. you know like this was this was dolores and ginger's program you know they ma- wanted to make sure that the police were very well taken care of mm-hmm. so that they could help respond when they needed them to also, you know, yeah. they wanted to have a good working relationship with them. Um, and with the, and with the city, with the city council and with the leadership, you know, they wanted the mayor to be able to step in and, you know, keep the policies friendly. And they wanted the higher up politicians like Harry Magnuson, for example, to be able to negotiate with the governor and to say, Hey, you take care of your end of the state. We'll take care of our end of the state. You know, they, this was a whole system and it was for the benefit of the community. You know, yeah, it was for the benefit of, you know, the madams who were able to make money and keep women employed, you know, doing this work. But it was, but the, the proceeds, like so many of the proceeds went right back into the school district. It went to um, people who were in need at Thanksgiving time. It went to like when the, um, you were mentioning Gary Olson's book, when the, when the fire happened at at the sunshine, um, you know, the, the women gave a lot of money to the families who had lost their, their breadwinners. Yeah. And I think, I think you said in the book that they shut down for a little bit. And so some of the women whose husbands were missing, like they put them up, Mm -hmm. something like that. Right. Yeah. It was very, I mean, basically whenever there was a need in town, yeah. The women rose up to that need and stepped up and did a lot of stuff that was anonymous. You know, there was a lot that they did that they didn't get credit for, too. Yeah, which is how you do it, though. I mean, if, if you're going to do something mm-hmm. nice and you're going to be giving, you do it without expectation of credit. Mm-hmm. They did want some. Ex- Otherwise, you're just stroking they your did own. Want, they, did, <laughs> they wanted some acknowledgement, though, yeah. <laughs> like because I mean, that was good publicity. Yeah. Right? So there was an element of that. I'm sure, I'm sure there's an element, exist. yes, but it, it wasn't like it is today when you see a YouTube video, some guy handing some homeless guy 50 bucks <laughs> yeah. where they're just stroking their own ego and you they know, weren't doing it for social media right. influencing purposes. Yeah. There was a, there was a purpose behind it, but sure. They wanted some sort of recognition and to be seen as human, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, yeah. like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I mean, there's, there's an element to that, but I think 
genuinely that they were just good women who wanted to treat the community well that treated them well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that that's the case. You know, a lot of a lot of women who go into sex work, like especially if they were in the profession in these days before they had wider options available to them, mm-hmm. they would have been counselors, you know, they, they would have been in a, in a helping profession. Like a lot of women who are in sex work, they say that that's part of what their role is, is to just be a good listener and to be companion and to be company and to like right. help ease the loneliness for people. There was one guy who he had a, he had a lisp. He had a like a problem with his mouth and mm-hmm. people, you know, it was probably hard for him to find women who wanted to sleep with him and to find a companion. And so those, those women became his companions like that. Right. That was his home. That was, I mean, they, they made him, they knitted him a scarf. It's still, it was still on display at the Oasis last time that I went <laughs> and, and, you know, they adored him and they loved yeah. him. And, and so that was another aspect of, of the profession, you know, like there is a stereotype of the whore with the heart of gold, but I think that that is one of those stereotypes that it's in part, it's there because a part of it, there is some truth. There is some truth to it. I would say so. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at, I don't want, I don't want to say freaks, but freaks understand freaks. (laughs) Yeah. So So I mean, you know, women that have been subjected to God knows what, you know, and they themselves are subject to ridicule and public discern or whatever. Yeah. I mean, they get it. So, so when you see this guy who comes in, who probably gets, you know, not very good attention most of the time, but you actually spend time with him, you find out like, yeah, he's a cool dude. Yeah. And there were a lot of men with fetishes that those fetishes could not be satisfied by their wives or their girlfriends because that was a very un, I mean, it was very unacceptably, Sorry. It was very, it was unacceptable at that time to admit to having desires that were outside of the, you know, the vanilla norm. Yeah. I mean, now that we have online video pornography that is so widely available, I think it has cut down a little bit on people being scared about sharing their fetishes or, you know, admitting to having them. But But back then it was like, I mean, you had some magazines. (laughs) Hustler (laughs) was like very controversial, right? (laughs) So Playboy um, and Hustler. So that was definitely a constituency that these women served and and they had to have a like kind of like a universal uh, goodwill, like non-judgmental perspective. Yeah. Uh, Which makes sense. I mean, mm -hmm. it kind of comes with the territory. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So... Yeah, I mean, the, if if porn has done any good thing, I think you're right, is that it's allowed people to be more open with each other and more accepting, I guess, of, of things. But Yeah, I always tell my um, students, it's, it is not sex ed. <laughs> yeah, it's not. <laughs> I think it's un- unfortunate when, some, when sometimes, like, people think that when kids are starting to get to, you know, yeah. understand. So, like my learning of the birds and the bees with a description, right. A verbal description. Like nowadays kids are kind of getting that education in a very visual and firsthand sort of way, like much more so than we did when we were kids. But it's like, you can mistake that for being sex ed and that is not, not. (laughs) but I, yeah, I'm, I have such mixed feelings on porn, but (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like I feel like it's just caused a lot. It's caused a lot of problems for a lot of our relationships too. Like, yeah. and as much as yeah, it's it allowed people to freely communicate and share, I do think it also has led to this phenomenon where. Like some women are expected to do more than they would have been, especially in terms of like anal sex. Right. Um, yeah. And feel some pressure to do so because it's so widely available on the on the internet. And then you also have like kind of this like for for people who watch a lot of porn and who are masturbating by themselves a lot then you kind of get to this point where you like need more and more stimulation oh, yeah. to reach the same like any addiction yeah it's a drug right and, and it's it's feeding a dopamine habit yeah and like any drug you got to have more and more mm-hmm. and you got to have harder and harder stuff and weirder right. and weirder stuff mm-hmm. so that's where my mixed feelings come in i guess yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. You know, um, I, I, I would, I would agree that all in all, it's not a good thing. I mean, maybe once in a while, whatever, if, if that's what you and your partner are into and you just want to spice something up and have something playing like, okay, fine. But to just be on it all day, every day, hitting that feeder bar, mm-hmm. it's not good. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you, you know, the whole thing with, uh, you know, women being expected to, to do more. I mean, that's where men need to understand that it's okay to have those conversations and to express yourself and say like, well, what are you into? You know, would, would you be willing to do this? Blah, blah, blah. But if the answer is no, the answer is no. Mm. And you just accept that and you move along, you know, and women should be able to do the same thing. This is what I really like. You know, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that, but porn does give men a certain expectation of, you know, every woman wants backdoor action. It's like, no dude, some, <laughs> some, some dig it. Not many. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the women who I interviewed for this project also, you know, growing up in Wallace, she was saying how that phenomenon also affected her growing up in Wallace too. Yeah. That, you know, when her boyfriend had been able to go upstairs and have sex with a sex worker who was very experienced and, you know, able to do all the things, Mm -hmm. then he expected that similar stuff from her. And, and then also he, she was saying too, that he kind of like became her teacher in some ways, like Mm, here's, here's what you should do because you know, like this is what I'm learning from the sex workers. Mm -hmm. And so she felt like that was a very negative experience Mm -hmm. for her. She thought that that was a negative aspect of growing up in a town where sex work was freely available uh, well, yeah, available for pay. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, I could also see an aspect of that where maybe that's something where the two of them could have explored their desires and, and the things that they like together and mm-hmm. learned that right. together mm-hmm. versus him going and getting it somewhere else. And then, oh yeah, you got to do this. Mm-hmm. Ew, gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he just, but he'd had that education, you know, yeah. like it couldn't be unlearned, I guess. Yeah. And she said also, and, and she wasn't alone in this. Some others who were, who were women growing up in Wallace at the time said, you know, they would get cat called by strangers who'd come into town um, yeah. and thought that just every woman who lived in Wallace was a sex worker. I still got it. Even when I was down at university of idaho i'd go into i'd walk into you know one of the like off-campus frat houses and they'd be like oh wallace girl and it's like that you know that meant something about you (laughs) but (laughs) um 
you know, I kind of, I've, I mean, I feel like that, that could have, that could be one very negative aspect of having, of having sex work available freely, but maybe if it were just everywhere, then people would get used to it and they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be like that, right. you yeah. know, like it's probably Wallace being special also mm -hmm. that kind of made that kind of led to that effect as well. Yeah. It wasn't a, a normal, widely available thing. Mm -hmm. So yes, Wallace had that reputation. Right. Whereas what you're saying is if it was just legalized throughout the country, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's got it like big deal. Who cares? Yeah. 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 What is it? I think it's the, the Netherlands. Yeah. Where it is legal. Mm -hmm. And they, and they, Germany also. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a few places yeah. in the world where it's legal, but, um, I it, saw something about where they have like basically drive up brothels mm -hmm. where you pull in and the entire building is, is, so it's a building where, you know, all the prostitutes live and then they have this huge fence, like a wall around it. And then you have an in and an out. And it's just one way traffic around the building and you come in and they have all these like covered stalls built by the wall. And so you drive in and the gals that are working, they're just standing outside and hanging out and you pick one, talk to them, you agree to whatever you're going to agree to. They get in the car and then somebody will direct you into an open stall and you pull in there. And so you do all your business in the car. It's like a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> And then the guys, you know, the security people that are, that are doing the directing, they're also paying attention. So if something goes down you're probably going to get beat up. It's mm -hmm. not going to end well for you, mm -hmm. but you do all your business in the car and then she gets out, goes back to standing on the sidewalk and you drive out hmm. like, and that's it. But they all, it's legalized. Starbucks they, of sex work. Yeah, pretty much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, but everybody has to get tested like every week and they have to show their paperwork and all that stuff. Like. It's very interesting how they, how they do things in some places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, like McDonald's of mm -hmm. prostitution. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> we, um, in, in Wallace, the, the way that the system worked was very similar to how it works in Nevada, but the women who worked in Wallace that they had a lot more freedom than they did in Nevada, I guess. Really? Many of yeah, many of them overlapped. So they they worked in Nevada and then they would come up and work in Wallace. But yeah, apparently you you were more free to like come and go as you pleased in Wallace than yeah. than in in the Nevada brothels. Which my but understanding while, while they were working though, they basically couldn't go anywhere. Right, they could go walk around a little bit during the day, but like they couldn't just hang out in bars and they couldn't just hang out on the streets. Right. Yeah. So my understanding is that the stricter Nevada policies were because of the, because they were run by men versus women yeah. and, and the madams in Wallace, they, they didn't want the women to be seen around town and as soliciting. Right. But, but they did, I think, want them to be seen around town a little bit. Um, they wanted them to be seen going to the doctor because oh, that was good for business. Yeah. They wanted them to be seen like taking care of themselves, like going to get their hair done and their nails. Um, and so they go across the street to Skippy's and get their hair done. Um, they would go shopping sometime too. They go to the bank. And so people definitely did see them around town. The, the main thing was just that they not be seen as soliciting and, and hanging out in the bars. Yeah. So yeah, not, not seen in a negative way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they didn't. They didn't want things to be awkward between the men and their families, oh, of course. and yeah, yeah. and they wanted 
they wanted also not to have the misconception that they were what what they referred to as quote unquote street walkers. Mm-hmm. So like women who were picking up people on the streets or on the sidewalks are really more realistically also in, in bar in a bar. Yeah. I can see how that'd be awkward if you're walking down the street with your wife and kids and then some gal that you were just with an hour ago mm-hmm. walks up. Hey, Larry, how's it going? Yeah, exactly. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> there was a very expectation, high expectation of confidentiality there. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like with, um, you know, like with a lawyer or, or a counselor, going <laughs> <laughs> back to the counselor similarities. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was very much like, yeah, what happens up in the second story rooms stays up there. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're working on a second book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to get a solid proposal and sample chapter within the year. So still doing a lot of research. I'm um, reading through all those uh Freedom of Information Act files that I got from the FBI and taking notes on those. And then I've got a whole pile of oral histories that I got from the Miami Museum uh, from that era. I don't know if there's anything good in there. So far, there hasn't really been anything like related to sex work in there, but I'm, I'm hopeful that I'll find some. And if not, then it'll just be some historical context, I guess. But but we'll see. And then I'm going to do some more public records requests related to the trial. And then I've also got about, I think it's 2000 pages. Um, so I've got a thousand pages from the FBI's investigation and that's, that's just the beginning. Also, I think (laughs) they have more. (laughs) I just, um, I'm not sure exactly what else to request at this point yet, but, and then What what about like transcripts of the wiretaps? Is there anything like that? Yes, there there should be something along those lines. I don't know if there's transcripts of the wiretaps, hmm. but because they had to type everything out, yeah. So I don't I don't know if there's transcripts of the wiretaps, but there's definitely some information from them. I'm sure. Um, I'd be rad to read some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably most of it would be boring. Ooh, juicy. <laughs> <laughs> but. But the investigative report itself is pretty, it's pretty good. They did transcribe all the interviews that they did with people. And, and then I've got 2000 pages of files from that are just basically on the women themselves who worked in the houses from 1952 until 1973. Hmm. So this was under J. Edgar Hoover's uh, FBI administration. They kept these records and, his name is stamped on all of them. And then after 73, when he was done with the FBI, they stopped doing the records in this way. And so, but for 21 years, we have really solid evidence of like 501, no, 530 different women who came to work in the houses at Wallace. So some of them are amazing. Like this, I think, I think I put one in the book. I think it would be... Yeah, it's part two. Okay, so like on pages 120, 121, I gave some examples of these files. And then um, there's a woman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the way up through, gosh, I guess I keep going. Yeah, like an FBI record. Yeah, through like 129, it looks like is maybe the last one, where this woman, I mean, this is her whole admissions history and mental health examination that's on page 130 where, you know, this is before the health <laughs> the limitations on health records and the sharing of health records. It's like her whole mental health file is, 
is featured in here and it's just it's, oh yeah 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 yeah. i remember, I remember this, you were talking about the doctor that was examining her and stuff mm-hmm. and yeah and then he even reflects a little bit about her desire to change her life she doesn't feel that it's right to take money from some of these poor men who have been her customers. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's that power dynamic of sex work that's actually reversed, just saying right. that, like, actually the women are the ones who are taking advantage of these men who they're exploiting. Yeah, it's kind of like, I feel bad for these losers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and she says she wants to go uh, be a nurse. So, again, with the helping professions, you you find this pattern, too, where she wants to be involved in helping others but uh so anyway so so i've got i guess see i start in the book with one pages 118 until about 133 i talk about some of these files but there's um there's 2,000 more pages of those. So, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so i was thinking that i would go through those and try and like um see if i could draw some more patterns in the data because I mean, it's a statistically significant, like, data set. Like, we don't have that kind of information about prostitution. Um, And you can see where else in towns across the country where they had also worked, you can find out how prostitution was treated in those towns. Was it called vagrancy? Was there a fine associated with it? Yeah, because when they came into town, I mean, they they asked them a bunch of questions, and they, they did, for the time, fairly extensive you know, uh, documentation of where they were from, where mm-hmm. they'd been, stuff like that, right? Yeah, they and they had to undergo a background check. Yeah. Um, they had to be, like, so there were no local women who were allowed to work there, first of all. Right. So they did come if you, in. If you were from Shoshone County, then you mm-hmm. couldn't work in the houses, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. And if you were found, some, some women tried, but once they were found <laughs> out, then they were kicked yeah. out. Um, because that, the community knew that, that the, um, or the, the madams knew that the community would not stand for that. Right. So... As much as they, you know, supported prostitution, there was definitely still a stigma. Um, yeah, but I mean, it it, it kind of makes sense that it was more okay for your husband to run up to the room with some strange woman that whatever nobody knows her, versus Peggy that lives next door. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah. So, so they had to have their whole background check run and um, to make sure that not only were they not from the Shoshone County area, but also that they um, were not associated with organized crime. That was a big no-no. And that they didn't have like some horrible deeds that they'd done. Like a lot of them were like check forgers, like basically crimes from poverty you see come up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was acceptable. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was mostly just if 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 you were associated with someone who was associated with organized crime, that was what they wanted to avoid. Yeah. Well, yeah, you didn't want like mobsters coming down and right. trying to take over stuff mm-hmm. like that. And there makes was, sense. there was always, there were always a lot of rumors that organized crime or that the mob was involved in Wallace, but I never found information to bear that out. Yeah. Not, not really. Not at all. It seems like if the mob was involved at all, it was adjacent and, um, mm. and it was Shoshone County who like, it was, you know, it was the madams, it was the sheriff's office. Everybody kind of kept a really tight watch to make sure that the mafia was not getting involved there. Yeah. Yeah. They were just keeping it to themselves. Mm -hmm. There were some women who were associated with like motorcycle gangs Mm. 
and who were involved in in organized crime and they would right. you know like i think great falls had had quite a presence and so they would try and just do everything they could to kind of like keep those keep those guys out of town yeah well and, and uh, you say in the book that there were women who had pimps mm-hmm. so they were sent to wallace to yeah. work and make money mm-hmm. and then and then they go on back, time off they go back, they, they go back to their, their pimps. pimps yeah yeah um, which is ridiculous to mm-hmm. me yeah well and that, because because the house takes their share and then you got to go back and give yes. all your money that you made to this guy that you really don't need that's right and and you that's know crazy. the the madams didn't think that the women needed pimps and that was why it was it was a no pimp town yeah um, they were not allowed in wallace but and and i think some people like tanya for example she came to town from she had a pimp when she first came to town but then she got rid of him eventually yeah because yeah it's not necessary. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, but, I, mean, I mean, the reason why you'd want a pimp is because of your safety, right? And so when you're yeah. in a brothel-based, um, madam, uh, run sex work, uh, operation, your safety isn't as, isn't as compromised. Yeah. If you're, if you're working the streets, that's one thing, but mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, still giving up a portion of your earnings to the house already, yeah. which yeah. Okay. Whatever you got to pay up to the house. But then going back and giving the rest of your money to this guy that you don't really need. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that they didn't have anywhere else to go. Mm -hmm. And instead of just finding an apartment and living on their own somewhere, then, you know, and maybe they had been conditioned to believe that they still needed this guy when they didn't. Mm -hmm. Well, and here's the, the, the problem is a little more complicated because um, a lot of these women thought of the the pimps as their boyfriends, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. they were also their their guys. And then a lot of them also had their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of them, some towns, you had to have a pimp in order to work in that town. Really? So yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it was like you were not going to be an independent operator as a sex worker in a lot of towns. You had to have a pimp, and that was the way they ran it. And so that was just how things were done. And then, yeah. And then eventually they would, I mean, they were very, pimps are very good about having leverage on you. So yeah. like whatever yeah, it's manipulation. was important and that mattered to you. Yeah, so course. that was how I think that they caught, they kept them, you know, coming back to them even after like in theory, they weren't needed. Yeah. It's, it's manipulation and it's basically mm-hmm. holding someone hostage. Right. Yeah. So that's another, that's another aspect of rhetoric that I'm pretty, uh, that I've always been pretty interested in is that difference between persuasion and coercion, right? Like, yeah. So like when someone is freely choosing something, um, that's when we say that they're, that persuasion's involved, but right. a lot of times coercion is involved in some way. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where that distinction between freely choosing sex work and feeling economically coerced or feeling like pressured in some way from somebody else, like kind of complicates all that. Like that's, that's an area that really interests me that, um, about this subject in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Per- persuasion is like, uh, dangling the carrot on a string in front of somebody versus, um, I guess putting the carrot in a cage. <laughs> if you want the carrot, you're going to get in this cage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. At first I wasn't really sure where you were going with yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wasn't really sure either, but then it started to make sense. Yeah. It, uh, you know, I get it. The difference between persuasion and coercion. And if you don't 
like do this or else, no matter how nicely you put it, mm-hmm. you know? Well, and you know, when, when you're in an abusive relationship, like whether that's a pimp relationship or whether that's, you know, yeah. Or any relationship, whatever yeah. it's, I mean, I've, I've been fascinated too, like with the, with brainwashing and cults and mm-hmm. like the brainwashing techniques of, yeah. you know, like the Chinese government apparently like was the mastermind <laughs> behind all of this with the, what the, um, the methods that the cults use yeah. uh, as well. <laughs> so, and it's very similar to, yeah, like any kind of abusive situation. CCP is the inspiration yeah. for your, your research into that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it persuasion or is it coercion or, you know, and where, so yeah, know. so where does that brain, where does brainwashing fall there? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both and yeah. it depends on where you're at in their society. <laughs> right. Yes. How Do many, you wear a suit to work you or have? a t-shirt? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so what is it exactly that you do now? Um, I've been a school counselor for the last seven years. Okay. So I'm doing uh, kindergarten through 12th grade. But I just going through twelve. Yeah, gambit. Yeah, well, (laughs) it's a small school, so. Um, But I am transitioning again. At this point, I'm going to be done with school counseling. I think at the end of the school year, and then go into professional counseling and see where that path takes me. So, do you have do you have a psychology degree? Uh, I actually went back to school to get a master's in school counseling specifically. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to take two more classes to get the professional counseling, like add on to the certification, I guess. Um, So, so the degree will be in both school counseling and professional counseling. um, And then have to do some internship hours. I think it's 600 that's required by the state for licensing take the exam and yeah, there's a, there's a great need for community-based counseling in, in Shoshone County and probably, probably everywhere really after COVID. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But well, I mean, COVID or not just in yeah. general. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think mental health is something that's been far overlooked mm-hmm. in this country. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to, I know it's only going to be a small, dent that I'm going to make there, but, but I'm going to try and, and work with people in, in Shoshone County and, and then maybe do some online counseling too, like for others. But I, I think that the, the real need that I've been seeing is in-person counseling in, in the Silver Valley. We just don't have enough people working out there. Yeah. So I am pretty, I have a pretty special concern for addictions counseling. That's that's one area that I would like to target in particular. And I was just going to ask if there's something you plan on specializing. Yeah, in. I think I think that that's really needed in in the Silver Valley. Um, yeah, is is addictions counseling and not not just like you know drugs or alcohol, but also all the other kinds of addictions that we have too. But in particular, drugs and alcohol. Yeah, I mean anything that becomes uh, an unhealthy habit. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, you could call it addiction. Yeah, yeah. I just I see a lot of need for it, and so so that's where I'm gonna go next. I think. I is there even any counseling offices over there? Yeah. So there's Heritage Health. Um, oh yeah. And yeah. they they have a mental health floor, and then there's Shoshone um, Medical Center, so SMC Family Medicine, and they're in Smelterville. So both of the places that most people go to are in Kellogg and Smelterville. And then there's a smaller operation in Kellogg uh, called Courageous Together. And then in Silverton, there's, I think, 
one counselor at uh, Love and Care and More. So okay, that's about it. So I think there's a total of, I don't know, maybe 10. There's just like a handful, but I think there's about 10 counselors working on the Valley. And are you, th- are you thinking about possibly working at one of those or starting your own private practice? Well, so I, I believe that I would, I would not have the correct license to be able to start okay. my own practice immediately. So I think I would have to work underneath another counselor for, uh, until I get a certain amount of hours built up. And then I could, I think, sit for another exam to add another license um, that says I could run my own practice, I believe. I haven't gotten that far yet in my, <laughs> in my uh, planning process. I'm, I just got registered for my classes in, right. in uh, March. Uh, March through, I think, the beginning of July is, is when I'll be able to finish up. So it's just a, a couple more classes, which is nice. Is that something you would want to work towards, though? Mm, yeah, probably, yeah. It, it would definitely you know, be a little more complicated, like having to carry my own insurance. And I don't know, I imagine there's other complications too, but I, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, being your own boss is, is nice because you can have some freedom, but then you also have other responsibilities and other hassles (laughs) to deal with. So it's a mixed bag. Yeah. I I was just talking about this, uh, one of my last episodes, my friend David Kelman, you know, cause I was like, Oh man, you know, the freedom that you have. And he's like, but am I really free? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, he's, it, it was just that morning and he had already ha- taken calls from his barbershop and this is going on and this guy needs mm-hmm. this and yep. all this business stuff. And mm-hmm. it's yeah. like, it's like your possessions, they end up owning you. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, your, your business can end up owning you, mm-hmm. but I guess yeah. it's just where you want to be mm-hmm. in that business. Yeah. So my, my and, current, and whether or not you're more of a hands-on person, do yeah. you want to deal with that all the time forever? Or right. is your goal to build it to a place where you can hire somebody to manage it for you? And then all you have to deal with is, you know, the little things, you know, wherever. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I don't think so. I think my dream, like when I think of my When I think of my future, my dream is to work a little less than I currently do, Mm -hmm. but to spend that time working more on my book projects. So, you know, I, I tried making it as a writer, like just as a writer when I first moved back to, to Wallace. So after a few years at Virginia military Institute, I did actually burn out at that point. Mm. Cause I mean, that environment was very workaholic and, and I realized that that was something that I didn't want to do. The military environment wasn't a great fit for me anyway. Um, <laughs> it was, it was interesting for sure. <laughs> but, but then, so then I moved you back happy in the militia. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to, I tried to be a writer for about a year. Um, just like live very small, live very cheaply and try and do like contract stuff, like consulting stuff and social media, uh, business. I, I tried to run a, a political campaign for this guy who I almost felt like I was taking advantage of him. I felt kind of bad because he thought he was convinced that God had told him that he was going to be president. And so he wanted me to help run his campaign. So we, so I, did that right. <laughs> for a while. <laughs> um, we, uh, we did a social media campaign on Twitter for him. And anyway, and then I started working at, at Wallace Brewing and I started bartending and, and then also 
uh, brewing beer. And so I did that for a while. And then eventually I was like, eh, I probably need to make a little more money. <laughs> like, I think I made like $10,000 that year. Wow. <laughs> and at the time, like you could live in Wallace and like yeah, yeah, yeah. barely make it on yeah. 10,000 a year. But <laughs> It was like, it was rough. So, um, yeah, I remember things used to be fairly cheap around there. <laughs> yeah. You could buy a house for like 60,000. Oh, well not when I, when I moved back that it was not that cheap at that oh, point, okay. but yes, up until about the two thousands, I think you probably could buy a house for under a hundred. I didn't 000. say it was a good house. I'm you could. <laughs> <laughs> um, even in 2017, when I was first starting to look at houses, there was one that was a pretty decent one that was on the market for a hundred thousand. So, wow. so they, you know, things, things were, things were not as crazy as they are now for sure, but it was still pretty hard just to make it as a writer. So then I ended up working in the schools as a, uh, they call it a community-based re- rehabilitation specialist. And they used to call it a psychosocial rehabilitation specialist. Yeah. So basically what you do is you're a one-on-one behavior specialist who works with the kids on an individual basis and, um, you're paid through Medicare and, you just kind of like document your hours and then turn them in and that's how you get paid. If the kid doesn't go to school though, then you don't get paid. And so that was kind (laughs) of rough, but it was a, it was sort of something that allowed me to use my talents, which was in the education realm and then also serve a need that was very pressing in the community, which is the behavior aspect of it. You know, the, emotional, mental. And then I also worked in the community doing case management and doing some of the CBRS in the community too. Like, especially for people who were like recovering from drug and alcohol addictions. So I'd work closely with the counselors who would guide their program. And then I would help do like the pragmatic stuff. Like we'd talk about the day to day. So okay, it's kind of like a counselor, but not, but without the qualification yeah. So you're being supervised by the counselor. So like in the schools, I was being supervised by special ed team and, um, and the school counselors. And then in the community, I was being supervised by the counselors. Also. So almost like a counselor internship in and of mm-hmm. itself. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then, um, so then Mullen advertised for the school counselor position and I applied for it knowing that I wasn't fully qualified, but like thinking that if they didn't have any fully qualified applicants, that then I could go, I could just go get my certification and it probably wouldn't be that much of a stretch because fake it till you make it. Well, it wasn't exactly <laughs> that, but yeah, I mean, there was definitely an aspect of where like, I mean, when, when you have a PhD, even though you're going very specialized in one area, you end up going broad in a lot of areas. Right. And so mm-hmm. like within, within rhetoric, psychology is a major part of it. Right. Oh, yeah. And so like when I was in school for school counseling, so much of it, I'd already learned because of my PhD training. So, and you know, as, as a part of my PhD training too, it was like, there was, there was also, you know, like the theory and philosophy part of it that I, that I'd specialized in as well. So, so my, like my like first specialty was uh, rhetoric and persuasion. And then my second specialty was that theory and philosophy part mm-hmm. too. So it was very, it was a very fitting, easy transition, but then, yeah, I think, I think I'm just seeing this need in the Valley and just kind of like wanting to do something different at this point again. And, um, maybe eventually I'll, I'll be able to have a little bit more time to work on, um, creative projects. It's my thought. What other creative projects do you have in mind? 
<laughs> so, if you want to tell me about them, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not give it away too much. <laughs> the, the FBI book is is very much. It's it's like more work than um, than if I would just like be writing um, made up historical fiction stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it's harder, I think, to write real life fiction than historical fiction. But I don't know. I've never written historical fiction, so maybe I don't know. So so I do think that even though I would kind of like to write a historical fiction novel that I do feel like the real history is valuable for me to be writing at this point. And so I'm going to finish this um, FBI book and like, it's almost like out of a sense of duty. I mean, I care about it, (laughs) but like, I really, I really feel like there's a a big need for it to be written. And because if I don't, I don't know, I I think that if I don't write it, then nobody else will. And I do think that it's important to be written about. And then I guess what I want is for it to be kind of more appealing on a national level. I think that it could have lessons for like our whole nation, not just like to be historic preservation for the Silver Valley. So that's going to be my goal on that one. And so it's a pretty extended project. I think it's, it's going to take a lot of work. And as far as after that, I, I don't know, I would kind of like to write something just silly and fun. Like I used to, you know, back in the day, like, like short stories. Yeah. No, like, like romance, yeah. <laughs> like, um, like stuff that is a fiction that, it doesn't really have high stakes involved in it and something that's just like kind of, I don't know, just for fun. I would like to write something just for fun. So you're Um, thinking more like Danielle Steele? (laughs) You know, I've never read (laughs) Danielle Steele, so I don't know. I've read maybe five pages of one book, so I'm no Um, expert by any means. (laughs) The women who worked in, yeah, and that's the thing, like I don't actually read romance, so maybe I should stick to a genre that I actually read in. um, You never know. You might might find you have a penchant for something that (laughs) you would normally do. Yeah. So uh, the women in the houses, they read these Zane Grey books. They're like... Western romance. I was going to say, why does that sound familiar? I like Westerns. Yeah. I read a lot of like Louis L'Amour and stuff like Uh, that. Yeah. So, so I don't know. Uh, I, I think, I think what I would like to do is some kind of a historical fiction romance sort of thing. And, Mm. and then maybe also, uh, I really love sci-fi and fantasy too. So, I don't know if it's possible to meld all those genres, historical fiction, romance, sci-fi, and fantasy. They're all kind of pretty... Cowboys and aliens. Pretty distinct. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, um, I have an apocalypse book series that I had... That I've out that I outlined like about ten years ago, like pretty detailed outline for a whole series. And then, and then it was like the Hunger Games came out, and I was like, shit, mm. that was my book. <laughs> yeah. No, it wasn't really, but but I I I am very attracted to the apocalypse genre as well. Really? Yeah. You should read that one second after. Okay. I'm telling you it's great. Yeah. That there's that's part of a whole series. It's um so one second after is the first one and then I think it's one minute after and one hour after. Oh, or something like okay. That. And and each one. It's so like twenty eight days later. Kind and then of it's yeah. Like twenty eight. Each one takes place later. just after the other, and it covers like a different time span and basically how a society deals with all of that okay cool yeah yeah that sounds great so i mean if you like the apocalypse genre yeah i do it's pretty rad yeah Yeah. um even that one when i read that there was 
again, it, it, it society turns into like Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we deal with keeping things in some sort of control and not just going crazy and killing each other over a loaf of bread? <laughs> you know, because yeah. nobody's got any power. That's and right. without power, you can't do anything. You can't make things. I mean, nothing. Mm-hmm. The only thing you can do is grow food and go hunting. But even they ran into that problem where when you're trying to feed an entire community of several hundred people, you got to hunt a lot. Yeah. And you end up having to go farther and farther and farther out just to find food because one, you're killing everything Two, the ones that are still alive. The animals figure out, I need to get the hell away from here. I'm going to get shot. Yeah. So Hmm. yeah, it just how everybody has to figure out how to get through it with some sort of humanity and then just the diff- the difficulties of it. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Nice. Yeah. And like I said, f- as I'm told, the government uses it as kind of a training manual for like like psychological purposes. They thought that it was so realistic that it should be something high-level officers read in order to kind of help them figure out how they would mm-hmm. make things work in in that instance. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, a lot of, a lot of research goes into the best books, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you're not writing true history. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to people before, not on the show, but about what, you know, if we were going to be attacked, what, what would it be? And in my opinion, I think EMP is probably, probably the best one Mm -hmm. because when you nuke somebody, what happens? And our planes would all, you destroy everything. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to attack someone for resources, you don't nuke them. Mm-hmm. If you want to take over, you don't nuke them because then you destroy everything and then you can't go in either until, you know, 35, 40 years. Mm-hmm. So. Right. Yeah. In the, um, in the apocalypse, uh, story that I was outlining for my own like exploration, I guess of, of ideas really, it was the artists and the culture that, yeah. that they attacked that it was like an authoritarian government who mm-hmm. came over and yeah. kind of like took over. And that was, that was where they targeted. Cause they were like, you know what? We can't have any creatives. We can't have artists inspiring people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so which, kind of like, it's very Orwellian. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The ministry of caffeinated beverage consumption. <laughs> Starbucks doesn't exist anymore. That's that's more of a Dan Cummins joke, but yeah, you you take away people's ability to think for themselves and to be creative and they just have to follow the norm of whatever the government says, mm-hmm. you know, and then eventually people get so, uh, what's the word? I can't even remember the word for it, but just lame and complacent, complacent. And yeah, God, I wish I could remember the word I was thinking of, but yeah, um, I mean, that's how you do it. And it takes time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, I almost, I mean, let me put my tinfoil hat on for a minute, but I almost believe <laughs> <laughs> that certain organizations have figured out that terrorism doesn't work. Right. Because when you punch somebody in the face, what happens? They get angry and they fight back. Mm. Whereas if you slowly convince them that it's a good idea to punch themselves in the face, you don't have to do anything mm-hmm. and you still get the result that you want. Mm. So back to the brainwashing, right? (laughs) Back to the brainwashing. (laughs) I am curious real quick. So these specific uh, FBI files that you put in here, was Mm -hmm. it Kim, Bobby, 
Was it just a random pull out of a hat? Mm, not quite. Out of so many? Or did these ones stand out to you? So they did stand out to some extent. The thing is, there were so many of them. Um, I tried to go through and do text recognition, but my computer like would get halfway through the project and then fail. <laughs> it, would, like, it was like too much. It couldn't do it. Maybe it could now. Maybe I've got the processing power to be able to like do the OCR now and have it like actually be successful. So none of the files, so it wasn't searchable. Oh. Um, and so what I did was when I was scanning all of those documents in, cause that was what I did is I, I scanned them all individually. It took me about a month. <laughs> like eight hour days just scanning stuff <laughs> just to scan wow. them all in well because part of my process or n- part of my project was preservation yeah. right D- and digitizing all these records yeah, yeah and here i mean these these records were just sitting there in this banker's box in a basement getting flooded you know um not climate protected like it was just to me, I was worried that we were just going to lose the history. And so, so part of what my project was, was not just the writing of it, but it was also preservation. And so, so I scanned them all in. And as I did, so I was watching the office, (laughs) like I went through pretty much like all the office, I think. (laughs) Um, and then I was also taking notes. So I'd scan them in and as they were running through, I'd like read them. And then I'd write in my journal little notes. And so then when I went through my journal notes, I just um, went back and pulled out the files that were the ones that I'd made the notes on that I thought were the most interesting. Mm. So, cause like I said, I didn't have enough space to like fit everything that I would have wanted to in. I mean, my draft, the oral history transcriptions alone were over 200. I think they were like 300 pages. Um, and so like, obviously I couldn't fit everything in the book that I wanted to. And, uh, so I just kind of pulled out like the priority ones that I thought might, you know, be compelling for people to, to read about that, um, oops, (laughs) that Peggy one in particular was unusual. It was not typical, the last one. So, and I said, I said that I said it contains a particularly remarkable case. Yeah. Cause, cause it goes into her whole life story. The others, I think, I think the thing is, is, is the others are more interesting when taken as a whole. Like I, I've been talking with a, with a friend, colleague, a guy who lives in Wallace, who bought a building there and, uh, well, he, they bought a few buildings there. So, so they're former professors as well. And the one guy said that he would help me go through and kind of like, see if we could pull some quantitative, uh, patterns out of the data. So I nice. think, I think that that might be interesting to look at, like how many of them came, you know, through San Francisco during the forties or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or, so are you talking about, are you talking about a project that's more in depth on the sex workers themselves? Oh, well, yes, but or as, ju- a, or just... as a part of the FBI book. Okay. Yeah. So here's my vision for the book is I, I'm thinking that I'm going to start with the FBI raid and then give a little bit of historical context with the, f- the federal presence during the labor wars and during um, the prohibition raid, and then kind of like start the story in the fifties and okay. with the way that Dolores and Ginger operated things and the way that the bar owners and the um, amusement quote unquote 
uh, equipment operators uh, ran things and the sheriff's office and then kind of go from there because that's really important context for how the FBI came in, why the FBI came in, why it matters, and then kind of have it culminate in the raid and um, the trial of the sheriff. And because the trial is a pretty important part of it too, because that's really where you kind of come out with like what, what it was that was attractive to the FBI and like what it was that their little obsessions were yeah, and what it is that was persuasive to the jury about why the sheriff um, shouldn't be blamed for, you know, what happened in, in Shoshone County. Yeah. Cause again, it's not like he did everything. Yeah. So it'll, it'll have quite a bit of sex work in it still like, but it's more from the perspective of the FBI and the, the government side of it. I guess I don't want it to be from the FBI governmental perspective. I want it to be, so sometimes you kind of have to have an outsider perspective in order to see things the way they are. Right. Right. Like, like a lot of people who grew up in Wallace, they didn't know that it was weird to have sex work. Right. Yeah. You know, as a part of your community until they left. Right. You thought it was normal because it was, it was always there. Exactly. Yeah. So, so to some extent you have to have that outsider view in order to like make the insider view coherently. You have to have the dark in order to understand the light. Right. So, so that's what I'm thinking is that that's, you know, kind of where it comes into play is, uh, the audience for the book is to some extent outsiders. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by having that federal perspective in there, you're really getting like kind of a built in like tutorial, I guess. And <laughs> <laughs> so like, here's this way of life. Yeah. Here's how it works. Here's what they didn't understand about it too. And my hope also is here's, to here's be a able, peek into something uh, out of the norm. Yes. Yeah. And and my hope is to be able also to actually interview the FBI people who were involved, which has been, it's been difficult for me to, to track them down and to, um, because they were all redacted, like in all the files, I do know one of one of them was pretty well known around town and my uncle was in the fbi also at this time and uh so he he knows one of the guys too but he's very apparently reclusive and lives up in like boundary county Mm. in the woods somewhere um but then way manis he wrote his own book the guy who was in charge of of the office that ran the raid oh really i think he lives in spokane so anyway i just need to look him up and call him right i think he i think he'd probably be <laughs> eager to talk to me <laughs> well, <laughs> might be fun so. yeah um man i was just thinking of another question for you mm-hmm. how um how it was normal how it was normal how it was normal for sex work to exist in Wallace, but you didn't find out until an outsider perspective. Is that, was that what it was related to? Uh, it might've been, man, it's gone now. <laughs> okay. Damn. I guess it wasn't meant to be. Um, I guess not. Right. We need the ministry of caffeine. We do need the ministry of caffeine. Actually, it's not a bad idea. I should probably get some more coffee. Maybe that'll perk me up. Well, if you think of it, um, later you can always give me a call. Okay. And, um, I think you've probably answered all of my questions. Uh, hopefully maybe somebody will write in with some or something. 
Yeah, I mean, I do answer my email from time to time, <laughs> so you can definitely um, shoot me an email, and I and I might answer it. Hold on, I just got it. Yeah. So there was that. It, it was like a short documentary. It was mm-hmm. like what twenty minutes? Half oh hour? yeah, mm-hmm. uh, about seventeen minutes. Yes. What, yeah. what was the name of that? It's I, just I post- called Wallace. Oh, okay. Yeah. I posted that on the Guys in the Garage oh, Facebook page. Right on. Yeah, a while back. I, th- I think it was at the time when I, around when I had started reading your book. Uh-huh. And then I wanted to figure out some more about you. So I found your uh, Facebook page and somehow I happened to hit on that little, that little short documentary. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was like, man, that was rad. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. Um, so Delaney Buffett, she's, um, well, Jimmy Buffett's recently passed, but, um, Mm -hmm. she is his daughter and she produced a little film called the spring. And it was about, uh, these mermaids who swam around in the waters of Florida and she won an award for it and then got this webpage to kind of like sponsor her next project. And I think it's a webpage, like a web presence I guess maybe not just like a, anyway, she got somebody to pay for her next project and she was looking around and I think it was Atlas Obscura and found an article about the Oasis Bordello and then the Oasis in, is in Atlas Obscura. Apparently, <laughs> that's awesome. I don't know that's what she said. She, she found it somehow looking around at like different stuff like tourist destination things I guess and so then she got in touch with me and and we worked together on the project she brought in a little film crew the film the DP and the other photographer gal like they've gone on to like win some awards for their movie making like they they've done some good stuff after after this too nice and we took it to some different film festivals and COVID kind of interrupted that, but, Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it was really neat to, um, be able to sort of like bring the book to life, the oral history parts and to go into the, to the actual history a little bit. Um, so, so how, so how did that come about? Did they find your book also, or was it something that was like an independent project of theirs and you guys just kind of got together? Oh yeah. So no. So Delaney just learned about the Oasis Bordello and then, um, she contacted the chamber and the chamber guy directed her to me. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, you could do your, you you could do a project on the Oasis Bordello, but there's a whole lot more to this story. (laughs) Like if you want to know just the one, (laughs) like you were directed to me because I wrote a book about it. So I could tell you more. And then, so we decided to kind of like essentially turn the oral history section of the book into this documentary. Okay. Um, we had to get permission from the publisher and everything. It was, it was an ordeal, but from the, from your book publisher. Yeah. 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 Uh, Cause like when you don't independently produce your own stuff, mm-hmm. then you have other people who have ownership claims on it. Too. Right. So yeah. Kind of like that, your own business thing, like self-publishing, I'm sure would be very beneficial in a lot of ways because then I wouldn't have had to like ask for permission from somebody, but yeah. But I mean, wouldn't there be risks then that you have mm-hmm. to incur that come yeah. along with that? Yeah. And annoyances too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's annoyances. nice to have the publisher just distributing for me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still, I do distribute quite a bit locally, but, and, and in fact, you found it because my best friend owns the, um, the lux rooms in the silver oh, okay. corner bar now. Nice. <laughs> and so, so I'm like, Hey, you should carry this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, she ended up she ended up in Wallace because I lived there, actually. 
So she was just like, all right, I'll come. Yeah. Well, her and her husband were looking for a bar to buy over in Seattle. She grew up in Idaho, but, and Montana, um, but then had moved out there and they were looking for a bar to buy in, in Seattle area. And it was all just like, so expensive. Yeah. They wanted just like a little neighborhood bar to run. And And then. And it's Seattle. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And so then they came out and visited me after we did a, a rafting trip down the Salmon River and they stayed in Wallace afterwards and they were like, Hey, this is a pretty cool place. And then maybe like a little more than a half a year later, uh, the mayor like got in touch (laughs) with, I think, I think he got in touch with me and said, Hey, Heather, tell your friends, uh, silver corner is going to go up for sale in the next few days. If they want to, if they want to try and buy it, they should, you know, go try and buy it now. And so, so they did, (laughs) they came out and within like a week, I think they had the deal sort of like organized and nice. And within maybe a month they, they had bought it and yeah, so they're doing great. Cause you know, Jocelyn, she makes amazing drinks and, Mm -hmm. and the Lux is a very specialty little fun place as you, as you mentioned. Oh yeah. It's pretty cool to stay up. Yeah. It was a, it was a lot of fun staying there. Yeah, and, and then Matthias had an f- artist friend of his come in and, like, you know, kind of memorialize some of the history in, in the book and put it up on the walls there. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it it's very, not just... It's an, very well done. Yeah, it's not just, like, a novelty kind of place to stay. It's also a history place to stay, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we thought it was pretty rad. Yeah. We had a lot of fun there. Yeah. So they've they've had it how long now? Uh, I think that was 2018. So. Okay, Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think they opened in I think they opened in March uh, in a small way in 2018, and then May was the like official or June was like the official opening. Okay, yeah, so I'm I'm sure I've ran into them then mm-hmm. when we stayed there anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's super fun, like you say, like to just run out the whole floor, <laughs> like have oh, the yeah. whole place to yourself. It's yep. pretty cool. Yeah. I can't remember. I think we had like 20 people mm-hmm. staying in there. They, I mean, they've basically preserved it the way that uh, Dolores had, had renovated it when she, so she had to move from the Lux rooms above the melodrama building on um, six and Kelly's alley. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So she had to move from there over to what's the Armit building is what the silver corner is now in now. Yes. Um, and she had to move because the state of Idaho bought that building because they were going to tear it down in order to make way for the freeway to come through. So for about a year, the state of Idaho actually owned a brothel. <laughs> <laughs> so she moved out, I think it was 77. So they had essentially haven't changed it since the renovation that happened at that time. Yeah. I thought that was a pretty interesting story too. How the state was going to run I-90 basically right through the center of town and mm-hmm. destroy half the town for this freeway. Yeah. And then it was Magnuson, wasn't it? That went through and basically had a bunch of places put on the historic register and petitioned to get things changed and change the plan and all that. And yeah, he, he came up with the, he identified the legal loophole there. Yeah. And then, and then Nancy Lee Hansen did a lot of the community based work they had a whole coalition of people that were working on the project, but he came up with the, um, the idea that there needed to be an environmental impact survey done. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to do that. There, there were a whole bunch of different, there was an idea that they were going to tunnel under the city. That was their preferred 
Um, and sure. Because, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and they actually, they, the, the, the number one preference was to just keep it the way it was because they wanted the freeway to keep coming through town for business for, cause yeah. at that time the mines were already shutting down, you know? And so they wanted for their transition to tourism to be able to still capture that freeway income. But I think what ended up happening was ultimately better for everyone because the freeway is above, it's elevated, so we don't really hear the racket and the noise. Yeah. Yep. And on top of that, people driving over like look down and they're like, oh, what a cute little historic town. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so. hit the next exit. Let's go mm-hmm. find something to eat. Yeah. But since it is on the historic registry and, and that was how they ended up, yeah, saving most of the, the buildings that had been slated for destruction, it makes things a little complicated to live in Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's one of those trade-off things. Like if you, you know, if you value the historic aspects of it, which are pretty, pretty cool. I mean, it's not, it's not history like Europe history, like going back <laughs> thousands of years. But what do you find? Cool. What do you find uh, makes it makes it difficult? Oh well, so I've been on city council and had to deal with people who can't do what they want with their buildings because they're historic. And so they have to get permission from the planning and zoning commission in order to make modifications. And then when planning and zoning has conflict with the people, then um, city council gets to be the ones to kind of like be the judge and jury on what happened. So is the whole town on the register or just certain buildings? Yeah, the whole town. Okay. Yeah. Um, so some of them are contributing and others are non-contributing. And then there's kind of like a middle area. Hmm. <laughs> so you really got to jump through hoops just mm-hmm. to. Like if I wanted to replace the fence in front of my house, I would have to get permission if I didn't go along with the certain pre-approved list. Yeah. So there's like pre-approvals that you can just do. But like, if I wanted to change my windows, I'd have to go to planning and zoning commission and get permission to ask for what I wanted to do. So if you had like stained glass windows that were already there, you'd have to replace those with the same thing. Probably. Yeah. I mean, you'd, you'd have, that would be the negotiation with planning and zoning. Yeah. Man, that'd be crazy. Mm-hmm. I see. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. It's, it's been <laughs> quite controversial because I, we've had a lot of people who move in who don't, right. who say they don't know it. Like, yeah. but we're trying to get like... Like the realtors should really be telling them these things. They well, should, yeah, you, they should you would, you would think that that would be part of the spiel when mm-hmm. you're going to sell a place, you know, yeah. it's like <laughs> telling somebody, oh yeah. And just so you know, back in 83, like an entire family is murdered in here. It's not a big deal. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, by the way, yeah. you have to get permission to do anything with your house. Mm-hmm. See, I thought it was just like certain buildings within like a corridor through town that they strategically yeah put on the register so that they had to move the freeway. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was the entire town. Yep. But then the only, and they had to move the depot too. Right. Cause the depot <laughs> used to be on the other side of the river. Yes. Right. Yes. Right underneath where Do the you freeway remember that? When Are you they, old enough to remember that? Uh, no. Okay. No, I don't think I remember that. That was one of my earlier memories. Yeah. I knew that it had to be moved, mm-hmm. but mm, when did they do that? I think it was 91. Maybe it was 92. I think it was 91. It might have been just before we moved there then. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing that it had to be moved, but I, I Yeah, and then they and then they had a funeral for the last stoplight on I-90. <laughs> I kind of do remember that. <laughs> yeah. Which is still just blinking. 
<laughs> right? Well, yeah. They, I, I, I haven't mean, been over that way in quite a while. So Yeah, where it was, they do have a light up for yeah. like memorialization purposes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. And that one, that story is kind of interesting because it originally was like a fuck you to the EPA um, <laughs> was how that came about. And now it's just like a tourism yeah. thing. It's like a good marketing ploy. Well, yeah. When you drive through in the middle of summer, there's always like 20 people standing in the yes. middle of the intersection <laughs> taking pictures. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the manhole that is the center of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> What, why did the, what was it, what was it with the EPA? What, what did they, have uh, that come about? so, you know, we were a super fund site. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and, the, the entire Valley. Yeah. And you know, the, the smelters and everything. Mm -hmm. And so the, um, there was, the EPA was basically saying that you couldn't prove something wasn't the case and it was a logical fallacy that they were using to make their argument. And so Wallace responded by saying, well, you can't prove that this is not the center of the universe. <laughs> so it must be. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so we're just going to go ahead and put this giant seal right in the middle of this it's, intersection. It says center of the universe. That's and rad. we're going to call it that because that's the logic of the EPA. Whose idea was that? High five to them. <laughs> I think that was a mayor at the time. Gar Garitone. Mayor Garitone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Garitone. <laughs> well, see, you ran for mayor. I won't I did. Yeah? <laughs> yes. I, I don't recommend it. <laughs> it was, um, I... I think I was very, again, with my idealism, I, I don't think that I realized that people would do the things that they did. <laughs> like what? Um... Okay, for just for example, <laughs> somebody called up a national newspaper and told them that in, in the process of me in my job as a school counselor, that I was telling kids that they needed to try having golden showers because I'd had a golden shower once and it had changed my life. And so I was going around advocating it to the kids up at Mullen. Wow, that's a hell of a stretch. I know. It's quite the fantasy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like in this fantasy, you know, like what was I, what was I doing? Like, what was the golden shower that changed my life? Like, let's hear more about that. What was it about, you know, this, uh, this golden shower that was so but particularly amazing? Well, yeah. But what's interesting is how did they run with that? I, yeah. How is that the first thing that you pick out of your brain to how run with that? for a ridiculous story? Yeah, I know. Right. Sounds like somebody who likes golden showers. <laughs> Right. It says more about them than me. Really. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, and there were, there were lots of other rumors like kind of along these lines, like just strange. One, one person told me that they'd heard from their neighbor who'd heard from another neighbor that there was a, a girl who was a tomboy who was going to school at Mullen, who I was trying to convince was actually a boy, not a tomboy. Mm. Uh, Cause you know, I'm involved in, in that, in that political turmoil there. So it was just really frustrating that they would go after like my, like my job job, you know, like not my city yeah. council work and what I'd done in the context of the city, but instead like, you know, what they could kind of like think that they could make up about like my real work. Right. Yeah. It goes beyond the level of dirty campaigning. Well, that's what I felt like. I, I didn't feel like that was very fair, you know? Yeah. 
and I, I've like done it's, a it's lot of... It's one thing to take on my ideologies and how you believe yeah. I would run the city as a mayor, uh but it's an, it's another thing to try to destroy my livelihood Mm -hmm. and my reputation with my occupation. Yeah, exactly. Like Mm -hmm. you would, you would think that that would kind of be a line that you don't cross. Yeah. You would think that's what, I mean, that was kind of something that I, I guess that I didn't expect or anticipate. And so I, and also from my neighbors, you know, like people like this woman, she'd known my grandma, like they were friends with my grandparents and it's like, really? You, yeah. you know, you knew and respected my grandparents and you're going to, you're going to be like this. So I don't know. It just, I just felt like they, there was a lot of people who were just playing really dirty when I, I didn't had zero desire to do that. You know, I didn't want to, like my friend was like, you should get in the mud too. And I was like, no, I yeah. don't want to do that. I don't want to do negative. I don't think I know, you know, from my understanding of rhetoric, I know negative works, but I didn't, I didn't want to do that. That wasn't. It's not my style. It was something that I wasn't going to be worth it to me, you know, but <laughs> so yeah. anyway, it, it was, um, I mean, it was definitely something that was a learning, uh, experience. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, it was like, like same thing with VMI, you know, it was uh, something that it's like, well, a lot of people don't get to have this experience in their life and I got to have it. <laughs> so. Yeah. Politics, politics is a, it's a dirty business. Yeah, I just I just didn't understand that it would that it would be like that. So. Yeah, grease and palms and uh, spreading rumors. Yeah, but I you know I was on city council for I guess six years seven seven years so I got I got some good time in and and I'm 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 finally done with city council too in uh, January so okay yeah. But it was, it was a good time while it lasted. I don't know. I might take a break and eventually go back and want to do that again. But for now, it feels really good to like kind of let go of any of that responsibility, especially because, oh boy, city politics. Yeah. It's, it's a mess. Even, even in a small town, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of messy stuff. So it's just kind of like, yeah, it could almost be worse in a small town. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe. I, I don't know. Just the idea that I get from it. Everybody and knows the, everything. Yeah. With my, exactly. With my they think they limited knowledge of how any of that crap works. Yeah. It just seems like it would be awful. I mean, the, the frustrating part was too, is when people were saying that I hadn't done some of the good things that I had, you know, like I got volunteer of the year in 2019 and people were like, this one woman, she was like, well, you were never at anything that I ever saw. And I was like, look, at, I have this thing that says that I did this, that I said, you know, and, and here's all the things. There's a like, picture of me is, right here holding a pumpkin with these kids. <laughs> I know. It's, just like, it's just, but the truth doesn't matter at some point. And, you know, and, and yeah. that was what I was writing about in the book, you know, rhetoric, gossip, you know, all that. Like at some point I just, I didn't realize that that would also be the case, I guess, for like running for mayor is like, at some point the truth doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It, what matters is what people say and what they believe. Right. So, but no, um, yeah, it's a weird thing there's, it's a thing with people now where unless, I mean, you can, you can throw everything at them, facts, photographs. I mean, take (laughs) video of it and show it to them. And they say like, nope, that's a deep fake. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's not true. It didn't happen. 
Like, and because they didn't run into you at that function, yeah. there's no way you possibly could have been there. It's like, <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Deep fake, deep fake technology. That's uh, a whole yeah. other gambit. I mean, and that's, uh, that's going to be a big part of our reality is, yeah. is just negotiating, um, you know, the truth from, mm-hmm. from the reality. Um, and I think it is getting harder. Yeah. Again, our technology has surpassed our humanity. Mm-hmm. AI and all that stuff. I don't think it's a good idea. Just, <laughs> just my opinion. Well, that's why we live in North Idaho, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> no, it's hard because like as someone who is a writer and wanting to be able to, you know, get my ideas out there. I, I am very reluctant to want to participate in anything like social media related. And so I have a very conflicted relationship with all of, all of that. Yeah. But you seem like you're more, you're more classic in the way that you do things. Right. So you're not just looking for a story and you're not just looking for whatever to write something and get it out there. Mm-hmm. you're what what i look at journalism used to be mm-hmm. they actually gave a damn about the facts and what was the truth yeah they weren't just like oh my deadline's coming up well i'll just write this blurb based on this one thing that i heard that i really don't know shit about and then <laughs> i'll put that out for clicks that's right yeah you know it's all clickbait anymore mm. they don't really give a damn about what the truth is it's more about okay what does the billionaire who owns the parent company who owns the company that owns this company that owns this media outlet that I work for telling my boss to tell me to say. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's, that's where rhetoric really matters too. Like knowing, knowing, you know, the credibility of a source, knowing, you know, the, the integrity of whoever it is that's writing, like being able to navigate the, the shysters mm-hmm. is just as important as, yeah. you know, everything else. I, I, I really, I really value my education for that, for that reason. Like, I feel like I was taught critical thinking skills, mm-hmm. like, because in order to be persuasive, you have to be able to, um, navigate the, you know, all the, all the crazy stuff that's out there, you know, the, the whole landscape of, the whole persuasive landscape, I guess. And so you have to be able to tell the difference between, you know, the shysters and the, and the truth seekers. And I do think that it depends, like what you say is true, but I do think it also depends on like what outlets you're exposed, exposing your brain to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's why you have to look at all of them. Yeah. If you, if you're going to look, you have to look at all of them. You can't just watch CNN every day and then claim that you know the truth. Correct. No, but it's impossible to look at all of them. It is impossible to look at all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, if I'm going to do actual like research on something, I will typically go by the rule of three at the very mm-hmm. least. I'll look at three different things that are from outlets. I know are mm-hmm. from three different perspectives and then I'll maybe look at some more or, you know, whatever. And and I'll sift through things and I'll pick out stuff that's patterns like, okay, well, they're all saying this about this, but they all have a different opinion about this. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's kind of just how I do it. Right. And did that opinion originate in the same place or was it from something, right. a different source? Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is because every single outlet has their own agenda. 
mm-hmm. and what what it is, what message that they are trying to get across, whether it's real or not, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, again, you can't just watch CNN every day. You can't just watch Fox News every day. Like You have to kind of look at all of them mm-hmm. or don't look at any of them. But then if you don't look at any of them, then you're like me and you don't know shit about anything that's going on right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I just got kind of tired of it all. Yeah. Which actually maybe is the point now that I'm thinking about it. Throw your hands up. Mm, yeah. Weird. Just had an <laughs> epiphany. Maybe they want us to be annoyed enough to where we just say, screw it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. And then nobody's watching anything. They would do whatever they want. <laughs> maybe. It's more my tinfoil hat coming up. <laughs> well, damn, man. It's been over two and a half hours now. Well, it's been fun. It has been fun. Yeah. Again, I appreciate you answering my email and, and taking the time to come in here and to chat with me and tell me more about yourself and talk about the book. Like I said, this is very fascinating for me to read. Um, I'm glad that you did this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I've heard I've heard that from a lot of people. It's it's nice to be doing a service that, that people have valued and going to try and get one more knocked out there before I go to more frivolous adventures. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope you do. I hope you follow through it and you get it done. I would greatly like to read that one too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think it'll be, I think it'll be worthwhile kind of flesh out and sort of put a, f- a, f- a final, um, a, a, den- a denouement on that. <laughs> <laughs> so the book is called selling sex in the silver Valley. A Business Doing Pleasure by Dr. Heather Brandstetter. Is there any specific outlets where mm. this is sold, like Amazon? Yeah, or? yeah, you can buy it on Amazon, but I don't make very much money if you buy it from there. So I would recommend <laughs> that you buy it from me at um, findheatherly.com. <laughs> findheatherly.com. Yeah. Perfect. But um, but yeah, you can get it on Amazon too. Um, if, you, if you get it from me, though, on findheatherly.com, just let me know what you want me to like purchase personalize it with and I'll sign it with your name on it. Or you can come visit Wallace and Johnson's Gems has them for sale. That's right. Johnson's Um, Gems are there on the corner. Yeah. Oh, well they had to move. Um, they're across from wall. They're going to be across from Wallace Brewing now. Oh, okay. And then, uh, you can get them from the silver corner bar where you found yours Mm -hmm. and they're so I, I'm not sure exactly um, who's open in the winter at this point. So I don't know if I could recommend people to go elsewhere besides those places. But I also heard that Walgreens is selling them around here too, which again, I don't make as much money. I, I think I was actually, because I, um, I saw some some other books that are about like, you know, Idaho and... Mm-hmm. Um, Local history. Yeah, local history type yeah. stuff. I don't remember if I saw yours, but... Yeah. yeah. And if you're in the Coeur d'Alene area, the Well-Red Moose has them. Um, hmm. And if you find yourself uh, going up the North Fork at the Pritchard Tavern, the Pritchard Tavern yeah. typically carries some too. Awesome. So come visit Wallace yeah. and find this book. Stay at the Lux Rooms. It's on Airbnb. <laughs> you want the full experience. That's right. Uh, hit up the Silver Corner Bar and um, findheatherly.com is Heather's website where you can also buy her book. Well, uh, thanks so much, David. Yes, thank you very much, Heather. Oh, and I will also put up a link to that um, short documentary too, oh, yes. for the episode. Yeah, yeah, please do. So I, I thought that was totally cool too, just to have like a 
like a visual thing that goes along mm -hmm. with it. Yeah. That was pretty rad. Excellent. Thank awesome. you. Everybody, thanks for listening. Appreciate all of you and keep on grinding. Have a great week. Bye-bye.